Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. As civilization comes crashing down around us, you might find yourself having a little trouble getting to sleep. What keeps you up at night? Bills? Sure. Health issues? Sure. The destruction of democracy? Maybe. The degradation of the planet before our very eyes? Could be. Well, writer and director Adam McKay isn't afraid to admit that adults need bedtime stories, too. Join Adam McKay and friends for improvised meandering tales meant to lull you to sleep. Stories of wayward polka dots, martial arts in mysterious platinum suits, and the terrifying panic of grabbing free stuff. And don't miss sleepy tales from guests like Sarah Silverman, Cola Scola, and Michaela Watkins. Listen to Bedtime Stories with Adam McKay on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Warning! This podcast contains spoilers for Andor, Episodes 8 and 9, plus The Wonderful Tales of the Jedi, plus Black Adam, plus a bunch of horror movies that came out in the year 2022. Uh, folks, if you don't want to be spoiled from that stuff, watch yourself. Be careful. Jason Concepcion, welcome to X-Ray Vision, the crooked podcast where we dive deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture in this episode. In the airlock, it's a big Star Wars episode where we will be discussing Tales of the Jedi, all six wonderful vignettes of Tales of the Jedi, plus and or episodes eight and nine. In the previously on, we will be discussing uh, in theaters now the reorganization of the power hierarchy <laughs> of the DC franchise with Black Adam. Plus, Rosie's going to take us into the year 2022 in the horror genre. Don't miss that, folks. Spooky season is not over, but it but horror is always with us. And in the hive mind, Rosie's interviewing Run Sweetheart Run director Shauna Feste. If you want to jump around, as always, check the show notes for the timestamps. And joining me today, she's the number one fan of horror, the number one fan of giant nuclear lizards, <laughs> number one comics historian. It's she's Rosie true. Knight. How are you, Rosie? How are you? Hi, I'm, I'm happy. I'm glad to be here, man. I mean, we are like, we've been so busy, but it's it's Star Wars time, baby. And we're going to be, we're going to be diving oh, in. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. We're stepping out of the airlock and into a galaxy far, far away to discuss Tales of the Jedi and the really crushing it right now Andor, which uh just aired their episodes eight and nine let's start with tales of the jedi which i'll be flat out had me crying at the yep. end yeah i think had it me is crying i think dave filoni has spoken about how the tone even though Ugh. it's animated, you just have to be aware you're going into this. You're going to cry. It's going to get rough. It's going to be emotional. And they said some of that, you know, was impacted 
by COVID and, and the tone of things. I think they were creating this along the same time as The Mandalorian. So it's really interesting to see that juxtaposition. Oh, and I mean, wow, this is just, this is Dave with like full creative freedom. He is getting to add characters, uh, context and depth and moments to these characters from the prequel era from these stories that he loves to tell we're back to the clone wars animation style and each episode is just absolutely heartbreaking yeah i don't obviously this is george lucas's world this is george lucas's story the prequels the fall of the republic you know the clone wars those are those are his sandboxes that he's had banging around in his head since you know late 60s and 70s yeah but for my money the reason that that period of galactic history has the emotional depth the tragic depth that it has is because of dave filoni and and these george tales, knows which, that he knows george, that. And, yeah I, I i agree with you and these tales which span the birth of Ahsoka Tano to her escape from Order 66, um, at which give us a different kind of view of the Jedi deliberations, the Jedi Council, Count Dooku in particular, are just incredible. Incredible. Like, it, uh, like to make a flat-out villain like Dooku, you know what I mean? You watch Clone mm -hmm. Wars, you're like, this is a bad guy. Um, and... Uh, of course, the novelizations have done a lot of work in this regard with Dooku, who is a rich kid, uh, had a very complex upbringing, came came from a very different kind of place that many of the Jedi masters did as a as a as a child of wealth and privilege, like mm -hmm. comes to it with a very diff different worldview. And so but. The kind of layers that Tales yeah. of the Jedi added to him, I mean. Flat out. Count Dooku is making some points throughout yeah, these episodes. This is one of my favorite kind of Star Wars stories where a creator in that world recognizes how easy it is to go on the path of the light and the path of the dark and how it's only one decision or, or one small series of events. And so to have Ahsoka's path and to see how Ahsoka became the hero that she is, and then to have it juxtaposed with Dooku's path to the dark side. And actually, in these episodes, you know, specifically episode four, we get to see yeah. his Mace Windu moment, the moment that he killed the person that truly turned him to the dark side, you know? And to get... It's so interesting to me, because the Clone Wars always did this. So did Rebels. Like, it builds a context outside of what we know from the main canon films and even the main canon books, it draws from some of the, you know, what we know now as legends that used to be the expanded universe. But I've never really seen someone use these kind of tight 15 minute long Ugh. shorts as a way of basically weaving in these kind of moments and tapestries and, and adding to the story. I mean, the Dooku stuff, I was very interested when I heard it was mostly Ahsoka and Dooku. And then I watched it and I was like, oh, okay, I get it. This is a tragedy. It's a Sith Lord is always a tragedy. Somebody turning to the dark side is always a tragedy. And now we get to see the tragedy of Count Dooku. We get to see what drove him there. And we also get to see very interestingly, he's not the only person who had 
problems with the Jedi Council. We see other people who share his issues. We see Yaddle. You have big respect. Love Yaddle. Everyone loves Love Yaddle, Yaddle, you know. Um, but like we see Yaddle, we see, you know, Qui-Gon Qui yeah. Jinn, who has always had a different philosophy from Absolutely. the Jedi Council, who for a long time, you know, uh, sorry, Pablo Hidalgo, I know you hate this terminology, but like he was considered a gray Jedi, someone who could use both sides of the force. Like lots of fans wondered if that was who Qui-Gon was. So to build on this idea that Dooku was seduced to the dark side for his imagination, for his vision, for what the Jedi Council could be, for his confusion around the way that things were run. That is very interesting and it's very much made text here. It's it's a really interesting selection of stories and I feel like this is a great use of animation Completely to agree. build out these stories. And obviously it's beautifully animated. Like Clone Wars, that is an animation style that at the time was controversial, but now we're all like, big fans of it. it gives us a nostalgic feel we get to see these characters envisioned in a way that is familiar to us you know we're back at it anyway again with the newest season that came out recently on disney plus and the bad batch so yeah just great stuff let's go through the episodes so episode one life and death we see the birth of ahsoka tano up through her early toddlerhood we see her father nikhil announcing the birth of his daughter to the village. The mother of poverty presents the babe to the village elder. And we know immediately, you know, you know, without having to hear anything who this child is. Then a year later, uh, poverty is taking her child on a hunt. She is teaching the young Ahsoka the importance of the life that is all around them, the kind of web of nature that surrounds mm -hmm. and supports their village. The child Ahsoka is delighting in all of this. They um, they hunt a Kybrook, which they see, and and in this moment that really mirrored, I think, quite consciously, Bambi, the opening of Bambi. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, quite evocative of that. They track the Kybrook. They they um, um, Pavti shoots it, and then um, has Ahsoka confront death, confront the animal's death and says, you know, you do, we don't be afraid of death. It's like essentially saying it's part of life. You have to learn to face your fears. Um, and then as they're preparing to um, take the Kybrook back to the village, they're interrupted by kind of saber-toothed predator. Popti fights the animal. Um, this goes on for some time, but eventually the villagers come to, to their aid and they're shooting at this uh, saber tooth that then picks up Ahsoka and runs off. Peace. It's um, gone. Peace. It's gone into <laughs> the night. The, the cat takes Ahsoka back to its lair, which is littered with bones. Mm -hmm. And the cat is kind of like leaning in for the kill, we think, but also is very curious about the child. And Ahsoka is completely fearless, just touches the cat on the nose. And then something is exchanged because, of course, we understand that Ahsoka is force sensitive. Mm -hmm. And it, in this moment that would have surely become legendary in this village. Right? Yeah. Ahsoka comes riding back <laughs> in the night on top of this cat as all of the villagers are just like, oh my God, what does this mean? And of course, the village elder knows what it, what it means. It means Ahsoka is a Jedi. Yeah. Just a great way to start this story. Also, like, I love this kind of expansion of because you know this is, is is Ahsoka a Jedi? Well, she didn't end up becoming a Jedi. You know, she went on her own path. But I love this idea that in some communities and cultures in the galaxy, if you are Force sensitive, you are a Jedi. 
it's that it's that it's what we got hints of in the end of the last jedi which is like this is doesn't have to be some elitist school that you must study with if you are the if you have the force if you are one with the force and the force is one with you you are a jedi and i i really love that it's it's very powerful moment and definitely like big cute baby grogu baby yoda vibes with the way they animate ahsoka she's she's a beautiful little baby full of force sensitivity it's it's a really fun kind of positive opening and then it's just like boom episode two sad (laughs) episode two justice count dooku uh, a young jedi and it is it's quite a thing to see a young count dooku arrives with his apprentice qui-gon jinn uh, to resolve uh, a hostage crisis on a planet a senator's son has been taken captive they arrive on a grim at a grim village where absolutely no one is happy to see them there at a local watering hole dooku is asking for information Does anybody to know um who attacked the senator where the where the senator's son is the villagers believe that the jedi are on the senator's side and fairly so right and and believe that therefore they're there as his henchmen, essentially. Yeah, emissaries. Like, yeah, kind of and so, and, and, they, and it's very clear that they hate this senator, Senator yeah. Dagonet, whose policies you can just look around and look at the m- miserable state they're all all in. Whose policies have, you know, turned their lives into a kind of gray hell. And it turns out does not take long to figure out uh, that. The entire village has conspired to kidnap the senator's son. Um, Dooku and Qui-Gon Jinn go, are taken to the son because the villagers, honestly, they want what the senator is doing to them to be known. They want yeah, it to they want it out the there. Yeah, this is the point of why they kidnapped the son. And as we learn, the senator's son does not completely disagree with them. I mean, there's some serious... You can call it Stockholm Syndrome. You can call it whatever you want. But the son absolutely empathizes with these, with the with the people saying, you know, essentially they have a point. They have a point about, you know, of the, the reason they did this. I, I understand it. Um, and just as he's kind of like explaining this to Dooku and Qui-Gon Jinn, Dagonet arrives at the head of a column of troops. Dooku and Jinn go out to confront them. Dagonet didn't know that Jedi's were in the area. And so he's like, hey, great, you're here. Arrest the villagers and let's let's enact my revenge. But Dooku's like, no, I'm, I'm going to defend them because they actually have a point. Your your policies are terrible. Yeah. Um, a gunfight takes place. Many of the townspeople are gunned down during it. Dagonet says, I will destroy this town and make an example of it. We see the darkness emerge in Dooku, who is, we're about to learn, tired of the kind of stasis of the Jedi Council. of it, And it how it seems props more... up dictators, which is yeah. essentially what it's doing know, right. Dagonet how it wants. Seems, how it seems certainly more concerned with its own survival as an organization, mm-hmm. you know, than doing justice in, yeah, in yeah, like they mind. will, they will uphold the status quo yes. to keep their place. And it's the, the constant question in any kind of morality tale of like, the good of the few versus the good of the many. But in this case, it's very obvious that the Jedi are truly ignoring the good of the many, even. Like, even though it's just one town, he said he will hurt many others. Like, this is a man who is greedy. So Dooku, you know, ch- chokes him out with a force. I'm not I'm not saying he's wrong. 
I'm not saying he's necessarily <laughs> wrong. He's obviously playing with powers and yes. with the side of the force that are better left alone. It, it's one that of those said. Yeah, it's one of those moments where you see, even though his intentions might be right, using the dark side of the force is having an impact on him that will ripple will out you, to his future. It will pull you further and further into the dark side for sure. Um, uh, so Qui Gon Jinn goes and frees the son of Senator Dagaday and is like, go out there and talk to your, and, and explain to your father right now, because my master is about to do a thing that he will regret forever. And so Dooku releases the Senator. And then later uh, he wonders to Jin if there will ever be justice in the galaxy, because things mm -hmm. are just kind of like, there's so much corruption. There's corrupt senators clearly. And this is, you know, I thought I found this to be a very trenchant idea. Like, mm -hmm. When, when, at what point, you know, obviously it's, it makes sense. You don't want the, the perfect to be the enemy of the good, right? Like if you have something that's pretty good, you can reform it, but you don't need to scrap the entire thing and start over. And that is the place where Dooku finds himself philosophically. Can we even reform if the Jedi are just here to protect this, the status quo, or do mm -hmm. we need to tear the whole thing up? Um, and we'll, obviously we, we will we understand where Dooku goes because of the prequels. And we see that journey here. Episode three choices. It's years later. Mm -hmm. Mace Windu and Count Dooku are on a mission. There has been an attempt on a Senator's life on Raxus uh, and a Jedi master Ketri has died defending the Senator. Mace wants to play by the rules and not get involved in local politics. We're just going to come here, we do our job and leave. And Dooku obviously is like, well, something Something unjust has happened here, right? Mm -hmm. We should figure out what it is. Should we not, like, investigate? Uh, Dooku and Mace are taken to see Senator Larrick. Larrick says that um, the rebels, uh, some rebels had contacted, some separatists had contacted him, which is why he returned to Raxus. He wants peace. Uh, and then uh, Larrick says that he and Katri went to meet an informer who was going to tell them about this kind of movement that was burbling, and that's when they were attacked. Uh, immediately, the Jedi realize that Larrick is hiding something. Mace wants to be wants to say, "Okay, well, we can let's just do our business here, and then we'll go back and we'll mm -hmm. inform the council about what we've learned." Why, whereas Dooku is like, "No, this senator is lying. We need to figure out what he's lying about. We need we're here. We should do it." Um, the Jedi and the senator go to the attack site that um, that Senator Larrick uh, leads them to, and he tells his story. Uh, there were multiple attackers. They ambushed from the woods. They were shooting at me. But of course, the story doesn't add up. And suddenly, Larrick is, runs away from them and the guards gun him down. They realize that it was the guards who were involved in this. Attack droids appear. There's a big fight. Jedis handle it easily. And eventually what we learn is here is another corrupt senator who's been mm -hmm. exploiting his people. And the people had captured him with the intent of forcing him to enact more favorable legislation, you know, more friendly legislation, more generous legislation that will actually benefit his constituents into the Senate. And uh, and for this reason, they don't trust the Jedi. They say the Jedi claim peace, but they only keep law and order for the rich and powerful. And this is something that really resonates with Dooku, who I, you know, ironically, and maybe because of his background as a rich 
kid, it really resonates with him. Mm-hmm. He sees the truth in it. He sees yeah. the truth in it. And it's a perfect follow-up to what we already saw where he's seen this. And we can imagine over the intervening years that Count Dooku has seen many corrupt, wealthy people who are not looking after their towns, who are not looking after their constituents. We've seen it in many different Star Wars stories you know, it's the nature of the 1% of the yeah. way that people stay rich. The idea that there cannot be a good billionaire because if you were a good person, you would never need a billion dollars. You would have given it much of it away before you ever became a billionaire. So it's a really interesting thing. And obviously, again, for Dooku, this is another one of those sliding door moments or ripple moments where his his divisions with what he sees as the right thing to do, get further and further away from the Jedi. Um, Mace wants Dooku to explain himself to the council. Dooku, meanwhile, wants to know from Mace, like, do you agree with the direction that the Jedi are going in? Do you agree with what we're doing? Um, It's that conversation is unresolved until years later. (laughs) After the funeral, uh, Mace gets the late Catrice's, uh, Master Catrice's council seat and promises to speak to the council about Dooku's concerns, whether that ever happens. um, Unclear. I want to say, like, you know, I think The Last Jedi got a lot of shit for, uh, among among many other things Mm -hmm. that were not legitimate, this is more of a taste thing, was Luke's cynicism about the Jedi and their mission. And, and the, you know, one of the great contributions, honestly, of Filoni's mm-hmm. work in this area is an understanding of just how imperfect, how flawed, how deeply flawed yeah. the Jedi as, as an organization have been. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I wrote an article at Nerdist after The Last Jedi came out about one of the things that resonated the most to me, which was like, you know, we talk a lot about the rule of two and the Sith and this kind of horrific idea that there can only ever be one Sith and one apprentice and when one Sith Lord, you know, basically you have to kill someone to gain power. But nobody ever really talks about the fact that the Jedi is arguably a very abusive space where they train children from birth. Steal them. They steal them from their families. Don't save the families, leave their families in slavery, then train them to kill, to be, uh, to not have any feelings, to not love, to not hate. And in many cases, it is the relationship between the Jedi, the Padawan and their master that enables somebody to corrupt them into the dark side. And I felt like The Last Jedi did such a great job of exploring that and looking at the way that Rey breaks that cycle when she won't take Kylo's hand, you know? So I think it's really a great point that you made that a lot of that was actually seeded by the deeper exploration of these things in long-form storytelling by Dave Filoni in The Clone Wars, in the Expanded Universe, of course, in the books, because there you have time to see all these different perspectives and that's why you know people used to complain about the prequels and be like oh it's too much bureaucracy who wants to know about space politics like there's too much talking about trading routes but now you know 25 years later 30 years later you have 
Andor, which is a very talky show all about the interior politics. And people who grew up on the prequels are just like, wow, this is actually something that speaks to me. This is the conversations that we want to have. It's not black and white. It's not, this is a, a morally complex situation with a clear bad guy, but also the good guys aren't always doing the best job for the people at the bottom. I mean, maybe it's just because I watched them back to back, but Tales of the Jedi and Andor feel very much of a piece. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. Obviously, covering very similar tonally, visually, like vibesy, yeah, yeah, definitely. It it felt of a piece. One, you know, from a more adult slash, you know, air quotes, mature perspective. Mm -hmm. Another one from a more you know, obviously it's animated, more traditional Star Wars perspective, but both dealing with this kind of tragedy of the loss of democracy mm-hmm. and and institutional decay, et cetera. Um, episode four, The Sith Lord. It's the early days of the Separatist conflict. Uh, Duke arrives at the Jedi Temple. He slips into the archives using uh, a code associated with Master Sifo Duke dun, dun, then dun. erases dun dun dun. Duke then erases all records dealing with the planet Camino. Of course, <gasps> we know that Sifo Dias was the name on the receipt <laughs> for for the millions of clone troopers purchased mm-hmm. uh, from the the genetic scientists on Camino. Clearly, Duku, we can surmise from this, is working with Palpatine at this point and is working to cover any kind of connections, cover the tracks between uh, Saifa Diaz and the planet Camino. Jocasta New, uh, keeper of the archives, tells Dooku that Dooku's apprentice, Qui-Gon Jinn, has encountered a Sith Lord somewhere on the Outer Rim. And this is big news. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. You know, the Jedi Temple is a buzz with, oh my God, a Sith Lord, a Sith Lord. Jinn and Yaddle go to address the council. Dooku stops them on their way in and wants information about this Sith Lord, about the attack. And the, the attack happened on Tatooine. Jin is sure it was a Sith Lord. Yaddle, meanwhile, is, you know, a product of the kind of Jedi thinking of the day. She says, like, we shouldn't raise the alarm about this. Let's not fly off the handle. In fact, let's not spring into action at all until we know more. We need to investigate more. We need to look into this more, uh, which is kind of, which is the real, the sadly unfortunate line from Yoda on down of the Jedi Council during this time was, "Well, look into it. We need to look into it. Let's look into it. Let's <laughs> we'll do an investigation." Yeah, uh, they will never, of course, learn more about this later. Dooku meets uh, Yaddle in the gardens. This is some time later, uh, and he's talking about how he used to bring his apprentice Qui-Gon Jinn here to see the tree because uh, Jinn was a city kid from Coruscant and had never seen a tree this size. And we understand now that Jinn is dead. He lost his life, of course, uh, at the hands of Darth Maul. Yaddle trails Dooku across Coruscant because she's kind of suspicious at the way that Dooku has been acting lately. And she trails him to an industrial rundown section of Coruscant and she sees him meeting with a hooded figure. We know this is Palpatine. We hear them arguing. Dooku believes the senator has gone too far to whatever his schemes have been. Surely Dooku agreed with them in principle, but he never imagined that someone so close to him, Qui-Gon Jinn, his apprentice, who who he clearly had very, very deep feelings for, which is like such a such a melancholic, sad wrinkle to all of this is seeing the effect of Qui-Gon Jinn's death on Dooku. Yeah, and also as well, that links back to this 
this kind of symbiotic, codependent, abusive in some ways because of the systematic nature of the Jedi. The kind of these unbelievably intense relationships that these people get into. And then when somebody is killed, where is the support for that? What is the fallout from that? And we get to really see that here. Like we knew the canon of who, you know, Qui-Gon Jinn's master had been, but like this is a moment of getting to see him in all his humanity and feeling the loss rather than just, as Jason said earlier, like a big, big bad, you know? It's a much warmer relationship than I think we, that anybody expected. Yeah. Just from, from Dooku's reaction. And it's, and it's so malevolent and perverse the way Palpatine uses that pain to draw Dooku deeper in. So Yaddle uh, confronts them and, she says, listen, Dooku, whatever has gone on to this point, join me now. We can deal with all of that later. Join me now. Let's stop Palpatine. Uh, Palpatine, meanwhile, says, listen, you want to the, the Senate is corrupt. We know that. Like, that's a truth. You are never going to cleanse the corruption of the Republic with Yaddle, who is, and the rest of the Jedi, who are just here to protect the status quo, stay true to me, and together we will bring down the corrupt Senate. Um, There's a fight. Dooku seemingly crushes Yaddle with this huge, like, metal bay door. Palpatine fucking loves it. He's like, this is great. You've proved you're loyal to me. But, of course, Yaddle is still alive. She managed to stop the door just... Bone chilling, incredible so moment great. when Yaddle There's is this still alive. Brilliant moment, and you're just like, oh my god, this is it. This is the the Yoda moment. This is the comeback. This is the Force. But sadly, as we know, both you know Yaddle and Dooku's <sighs> fates that we've kind of gleaned, we know that that's not going to last for long. But it's such a great moment when she pushes up the door with the Force. But the exertion leaves her very vulnerable and weak. Dooku. You know, Palpatine is like, you have to finish the job. That's how I'll know you're loyal to me. And then we can bring down the the Republic together. Um, And Dooku says the thing that is motivating him. I only want to bring peace and order to the galaxy. Um, Always ends badly, that wish. Yeah, it always does. You know, to to his, in fairness to him, he sees quite clearly how the bureaucracy and corruption of the Senate is really is is working against justice. That that said, this is not the way to do it. But mm-hmm. of course, Duke is too far gone now. He strikes down Yaddle. And That's Palpatine the moment. That's the delighted. moment that you are committed to the dark That's side. That, There's no that coming killing. back from that. I know. And the thing I find so heartbreaking is like they do such a good job here where you really get to see that Yaddle is morally aligned with Dooku in some ways. And Yaddle... Yeah, she's like, I she's agree like, with it's you. It's true. This yeah. sucks. And also she's like, I love this. This is one of the moments I found strongest where she said, it doesn't matter what you've done in the past. If you make the that. right yeah. choice now... Do it now. Yeah. That is all that matters, is that you make the right choice, you come with me, and we make this right. That is so... You want him to take that option so badly. And you just, yeah, you know, it's not going to happen. I found myself wondering, had Jin lived, would Dooku have gone all right down this? I feel like that's what this episode wants us to right to 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 really understand that that was the that 
That's the final straw. That was the final thing that drew him even deeper, even though, perversely, it was Palpatine that caused that to happen. Um, Episode five. Love this episode. Practice makes perfect. Clone Wars raging. Jedi Jedi Anakin Skywalker uh, arrives late to watch um, his apprentice, Ahsoka Tano, go through some lightsaber training. Uh, Kenobi, Windu, and Yoda are there. Yaddle is nowhere to be seen, but of course she's dead. And you have to wonder, was anybody ever like, where the fuck is Yaddle? I know. What happened to Yaddle? is it like, is the Yoda, uh, are the Yoda species, is their tendency to just like breeze off and go and live in a swamp? So everyone's just like, yeah, maybe just traveling. Because I would love to know what the reaction to Yaddle just being gone. Yeah. Now, like nobody ever asked. Mm -hmm. Um, we watch uh, Ahsoka go through uh, this training with uh, various training droids inside of a laser sphere that is steadily shrinking, and it is quite clear that she is eminently skilled. But Sky Guy doesn't like the test. He thinks, you know, droids—they're predictable. They're not like—they're not like living opponents who are random, who attack in ways that you can never expect. You need a real test. So he takes her to a hangar somewhere on Coruscant and puts her up against clone troopers led by Rex uh, in which they surround her and shoot stun bolts at her again and again and again and again. She's ke- she's getting hit by these bolts and passing out for an hour, for another hour, again, again, again. Um, and over time, Ahsoka gets better. She gets more immune to the stun bolt. She's mm-hmm. getting faster. She can go minutes and minutes without getting hit, but she still does get hit. Um, and after this, we see Rex and Ahsoka. After Ahsoka has taken the chip out of Rex, it's the night of Order 66, and we understand all that has led up to this moment that allows Ahsoka to survive Order 66 with all these blaster bolts coming at her. Yeah. I want like, so... The concept of a Mary Sue is something that has been talked about specifically with Star Wars. It is just for the people who don't know what Mary Sue is. Mary Sue is a genre of criticism that is essentially misogynistic. Yes. Okay. But it is couched in these kind of academic terms, which says that basically that the 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 power levels of a female protagonist are unearned and they're unearned and they're often unearned, not just in Star Wars, but in other stories. And they're often unearned because we as a culture are kowtowing to these like kind of like woke, uh, woke elites. Who yeah. Inverted commas on those, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, yeah so-, I'll, so basically the simplest way to explain it, this is what I always say is like, Think about the chosen one trope, Luke Skywalker, Harry Potter. And then if the chosen one is a woman in any story or someone who's not a cis male, they say they're a Mary Sue. It's that simple. Because guess what? Luke, that bitch wasn't doing nothing. He's shooting one rat. He didn't have no train. He had a train for like three days. (laughs) His his master died rather than just tell him the truth. Like zero training. But you know, Harry Potter, he's just living in a bait. He's living under some stairs. He'd never been trained. But yeah, but I love... Obviously, I think Ahsoka is a great example of Dave Filoni. You know, people did critique her, but like she's always been a great character with a lot of depth. But this is a really nice space of like here you want to talk wanna about know why you want to know why is such a badass. And not just that here is here why. is why. Also, not just that 
This was one of the shorts where I saw quite a few people being like, this one's quite routine. Like, it's just her training. And I was thinking, like, well, I disagree. to me, I completely disagree. To me, this is like so, this is actually incredibly deep because what they're really saying is not only is this why she's a badass, but also like, here is the love that Anakin had for her. Even though he became Darth Vader, he made this one choice that seems like a simple, offhanded, almost egotistical choice because Anakin's like, I know better than how the Jedi do, and, and, than and how and to almost- train you. Almost like too hardcore. Yeah, like, like, you, like too, there's points where you want to be like, like you, there's points where you want to be like Anakin. Enough. You can Let see enough. the man who's going to become Darth Vader inside yeah. the ego and the narcissism, but it is but, this choice and it is this obvious training that Ahsoka clearly kept up over the years that then led to her being able to evade capture on Order sixty six, not just because of the training, but because of the relationship that she created. That is so powerful and cool it's, and such a good idea. Was, it, I agree. And also it like- emo- It hit me emotionally so hard. Right? They, you know, because it's just like, it just draws a line through her training. Yeah, and her journey. Her relationship with Anakin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the fact that that is, listen, it's her her ability, her skill, but a lot of that is because of what she learned from Anakin. Yep. And that being the reason that she survives is amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. And also, let's just say, we talk about this a lot when we talk about Star Wars and we're always like cracking jokes and ragging on them, yeah? But like Order 66, they were pretty bad at it. And like, yeah. there's a lot of people where it just turns out, oh, that Jedi survived, that Jedi survived. Yeah. This is one of the few examples where we actually really know why. Like we yes. now know how Ahsoka survived, the relationships that made that possible, the skills that she learned to do it. It's it's very cool. And I think like, I like the episode anyway, because I like anything to do with Anakin and Ahsoka. I think that's such a Same. great I think it's addition to Anakin's yeah. canon. But that final push forward to Order 66, that really just clinches it. There's another layer to it, too, that I found myself thinking about, which is, you know, because you're watching this and you're like, Anakin, stop. Enough. She's she's passing out for an hour at a time. Like, enough. This is not good and, for and her brain. throw her back into it. Yeah, you're just going to throw her back into it. But a part of me wonders if some piece of Anakin as he's being seduced by the dark side, understands that oh, I love Ahsoka's that. gonna have to face something that that mm. no one understands is coming. That makes so much level. sense. He can sense it somewhere in his heart. He knows. He feels it He coming. can feel that something, he doesn't know if it's Order 66, right. but he knows that Ahsoka will have to fight something. Oh, that's so You're gonna good. Have to face I it love like this. that. Something and I more real than droids. That. that is yeah. such a good read. Because why else? You know, like, why else? Mm-hmm. And why just her? Why not any? Like, why not say, hey, shouldn't we do this for everybody? Yeah, let's just go it grab just... the other trainees, blah, 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 blah. And it's both generous and selfish. You yes. know, it's like the two Absolutely. sides of Anakin at once. He wants this person that he loves and he mm-hmm. cares about to have the utmost tools and skills to survive this threat that maybe he only darkly imagines coming. But also it's that selfishness too, because he doesn't, he's only sharing it with her. Yeah. Um, Episode six resolve. Uh, We're on Naboo uh, after the fall of the Republic that we're watching the funeral of princess Amidala, Uh, Bail Organa in the, watching the funeral procession go by, 
catches a glimpse of a hooded figure. It's Ahsoka Tano. He catches up to her somewhere in the city. And he tells her, you shouldn't have come here. There's nothing you could do. Ahsoka just, she took the risk because she wanted to pay respects to her friend. Bale gives Ahsoka a communicator. And he says, listen, uh, um, if you ever want to get back into it, you need me. Do you want to get into the fight? Call me. She says, like, I'm, that's it. I'm done fighting. My heart is broken. Everyone I know is dead. My master is dead. Everyone's gone. She slips away from the city uh, and then out into space in a Y-wing piloted by Rex. Uh, and then we go to a farm on some planet somewhere. It's maybe years later. We don't know. Ahsoka is living an anonymous life amongst the field hands there. And then one day she uses her powers to save a girl's life. That girl invites Ahsoka over to eat with her and her fellow workers. The workers are arguing about politics. And we see that the rise of the empire and its power is very, very it is a contentious subject out mm-hmm. here with some saying, well, the empire, it's better, right? You know, it's less chaotic. We, you know, like while others are saying, yeah, but what have we lost? Yeah. The boot um, on the neck is, is the going, boot on the yeah. neck. Uh, uh, the girl lets Ahsoka know that she knows that she used the force to save her life. And Ahsoka is concerned because she's thinking maybe I have to run again. Um, she and the girl go on a delivery run, and when they come back, they find the farm in flames. Uh, Ahsoka's been betrayed. One of the the kid who is like, I love the Empire. It's great. Everything's more stable now, has ratted them out, understood that Ahsoka was a Jedi, and, and called the Inquisitor Force. Um, a hooded Inquisitor is there, is about to murder Ahsoka's betrayer for essentially, like, he thinks, calling in a false alarm. But Ahsoka arrives saves a day, easily cuts down the Inquisitors because, of course, it it does not serve Palpatine for these people to be that trained or that powerful. She takes care of them easily. And the next day, Bail Organa arrives to take the survivors away. And there's like this chilling, oh, I just had goosebumps where he's like, you kept the communicator? She's like, yes. And he's like, are you... Does that mean you're ready to get back in the fight? And then she thinks about it for a very, very long time and then nods very quietly. She's back in it. And it was just like, ooh. Also, the the scene where she is facing down the Inquisitor against the flames of the farm is, it's just absolutely incredible. And like all of this, we should add, as a setup to the Ahsoka series, is perfect loved it i loved i loved every episode this was great yeah it's really good and i i think there's been like a lot of i'm not sure if this is canon or not but like i'm not sure if it's been confirmed but the character that she faces down with this story is um is is like based on ek johnson's amazing ahsoka book it's kind of like loosely adapted and it and and the character is, you know, credited as an Inquisitor, but it's like, is it the sixth brother who was in there, who's in the Star Wars comics? Who, because they don't say his name, you know, Disney doesn't tend to credit unless they say the name. So it's really fun to see them building in more of this non-Legends canon book stuff, which we know has shaped so much of this. And I think it's really cool to see something like Ahsoka, which a lot of fans might not have read, becoming canon into this world it's kind of the harlequin thing right introduced yeah. in a introduced in an animation becomes part of the comics then becomes a huge fan favorite in the movies this is like that where it's like ahsoka's introduced in animation 
the book comes out, Ahsoka is now using that law in the world of the animation where she was introduced. It's it's really fun stuff. So yeah, this was just really good. And I mean, Ahsoka is Dave Filoni's baby and, and he yeah. loves her, but she is also like probably one of the most popular Star Wars characters of all time at this point. So it's really nice to see them embrace that and expand on it here in a kind of unexpected way. And this obviously feels very timely knowing that we're going to get a live action Ahsoka. You know, so let us know more about her and and learn more in this space. Up next, Andor. Andor, episodes eight and nine, Narkina five, and Nobody's Listening, respectively. This show continues to be... Wow, wow, wow. Some of the best Star Wars ever. Blowing me away. Blowing me away. And again, the most radical maybe Star Wars ever since Mm -hmm. the first Mm -hmm. one. And certainly is incredibly timely. (laughs) Is it incredibly, unbelievably timely Star Wars? Okay, so quickly on episode eight, Narkina 5, written by Bo Willimon, directed by Toby Haynes. Uh, Cassian, after his arrest, finds himself on an imperial prison uh, labor colony uh, called Narkina 5, where he and the rest of his fellow prisoners are forced to compete in assembling machinery for the empire uh you know these gangs of prisoner men are are pitted against each other to see who can get the highest score and uh you know highest score continues to be in prison congratulations the lowest score gets microwaved in your cells sorry about it um yeah you will get fried at the end of every day until you can no longer work and hey if you're number one you get some flavor in your food slush it's incredibly depressing, but also incredibly realistic. Yeah, in- incredibly realistic. We meet Kino Loy, uh, the floor manager, who is a fellow prisoner, who is basically the prisoner that has been put in charge of the other prisoners in order to keep this train running. It's very clear that the Empire, they've got a vast war machine that they are spinning up, but they also mm-hmm. don't want to spend that much money on no, that's manufacturing. No, cheap. Or even overseeing. They, you know, put other prisoners in charge of the other prisoners. And then as soon as we uh, get more, you can just microwave these. It's quite obvious from this why uh, Andor was so easily, like, like why he was arrested in the first place. Yes. Because they are arresting people to make They're just arresting people. They need a workforce. And, And the way that the prison runs is very interesting, which is there are not very many. The guards do not have weapons in the same way. They do not have troopers. They do not. What they have is an electrified floor that they can electrify at any time. And all the prisoners walk around in their bare feet. And it is incredibly brutal and essentially we learn through this episode and the next episode that the Empire is creating a carceral industrial complex in order to build for the military and potentially for private companies, which is exactly what is going on in America. It's it's absolutely devastating and it is so well done. It's incredibly well done. Um, Bix is attempting to contact Luthen via radio, but uh, Luthen is not answering because he's... You know, he's raised his security level ever since the raid, uh, and he's scared that his transmissions are being monitored. Guess what they are? Meanwhile, he has gone to meet an old compatriot, hey. and, uh, our friend, 
Our friend Saw Gerrera. Still! Deception! Still uh, one of the most sensible people in the whole of the galaxy. He, he is proving it once again here that he ar- knows what is up. Arguably the first leader to really understand what the Empire was about mm-hmm. way before anybody else really understood it. To the point that everybody else around him who would eventually come along to his uh, kind of thinking were like, you're you're too radical. You're yeah. too extreme. And also he say, I'm not putting my men at risk. I'm not going to yeah. join up with your little rebellion. I don't know who they are. I don't know your little friend or what he's up to. And I'm not going to put my people at risk. And he's absolutely right. And that is almost instantaneously proven. I love to see Saw getting his Jews here and to see Forrest back in this role, which he just absolutely smashes. Um, Saw Guerrero declines Luthen's offer of a meeting with another rebel contact, another rebel leader, saw as like, I don't, to, to Rosie's point, I don't know who that guy is. Mm-hmm. I don't know what kind of mission you're proposing. That guy, by the way, who you're mentioning to me was a separatist during the Clone Wars. So like, basically, like, why am I going to ally mm-hmm. with someone who is a proto-fascist anyway? Yep. Like, bef- like, I don't I don't trust him, period. And I'm not putting my 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 people at risk. So go fuck yourself. Uh, Vel and Cinta go to Ferrix to find out what's where is Cassian. They feel like that's the loose end that is dangling out there. Everybody's very worried about their own personal safety, the security and the security of the rebel network. They have to find Cassian to button that up. But of course, Cassian, unbeknownst to anyone, has been, you know, swallowed whole by the Imperial machine mm-hmm. on Narkina 5. Uh, Miro, Deidre Miro, questions Cyril Karn about Ferrix, uh, but d- doesn't want to get involved with him any further than that. He is, of course, very, very eager to help. We'll talk more about that after the events of Episode 9. And then Miro leads a task force to Ferrix itself where she apprehends Bix um, and other people who knew Cassian and kind of. Ooh. And we uh, see that she is a she this is, you know, I'll take this. There's we were rights. There's we were wrongs. I had wondered whether her deep interest in the understanding of what was going on with the rebels was a signal that she was perhaps aligned with them or interested. no. We see that she (laughs) is a nightmarish fascist who loves to torture, who loves to maim, who loves to cause pain, and who is now, because of the uselessness of most of the rest of the empire, being given a free reign to do that. It is really hard to watch stuff, and she is just a nightmare fascist. It'll get harder. Yeah. In episode nine... Nobody's Listening, written by Bo Willimon, directed by Toby Haynes. So ISB supervisor Deidre Miro has Bix in her grip. And she wants Bix's cooperation. She will obviously torture her to get it. She wants to uncover the rebel network. Uh, She wants, uh, you know, names. She knows quite a bit, right up to whoever Bix's buyer is. And uh, she has quite a, a lot of information from Salman Pak, uh, one of Bix's fellow townspeople who clearly De- uh, uh, Deidre has tortured to get information from. So she knows that Bix has met with her buyer, who is Luthen, at least six times. And so she wants details. She wants to know who bought the stolen Imperial equipment, where did they get it, where did it go, dates, names, etc. Bix says, I don't know. You know, I met with this guy 
I, I would, you know, it's all anonymous. Like, I, I don't, I don't know. She tries to kind of play him off. Um, Deidre does not believe any of this. And of course, Bix notes, well, you're not going to believe anything I say, right? And Deidre's like, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Meet my uh, torturer, Dr. Gorst. We go to the prison factory on Narkina 5. Cassian continues to toil with his uh, jail compatriots on the production line in this endless competition. Olaf, the oldest member of the team, uh, it, it will be out after 41 shifts, right? But he's also fading. He's the oldest. He's not in good health. He might be senile. It seems he like doing the work is giving him yeah. some kind of arthritis. He's struggling to use his hands. It is the first hint of the truth of this prison system, which is just like the real prison system in America, you're not supposed to leave, especially not if you are in a labor camp. You are you are not supposed to leave. You are there. You are a worthless body. The title of this week's episode, Nobody's Listening, is something that Andor realizes as he goes on. Cassian kind of rearranges the, the work that they're doing to kind of pick up the slack for Olaf. And then gives the credit for that reorganization to another uh, of his of And he his thinks that he is get, he thinks he's dropping him in it and getting him in trouble but Andor knows it's actually going to look good for this other guy great little That's moment right. Um we learned from Dr. Gorse that the method of torture which the empire is incredibly excited about is uh, the most perverse and diabolically evil thing that you can imagine. It is the weaponized death cries of an alien species from Dizon Frey recorded mid-massacre by the colonial imperial forces. And the sounds are known to have a powerful, mind-breaking effect. Especially the babies. That's the thing. These recordings that they have lightly layered and edited and looped are specifically the cries of the Dizonite children who are now extinct. And they, uh, Dr. Gorse puts the headphones on Bix's head and presses play. It's horrific. It, just one of the most chilling things that's ever happened in Star Wars, period, point it's blank. Such it's such a... It's, dis, it's despicable. And, and also, like, again, we're going to keep going back to this because this is what makes this series feel so radical This is taking the notion and the nature of what the original Star Wars was about, which is kind of imagining, you know, telling the story of the the people in the Viet Cong going up against this imperial force, but imagining they were American. Well, guess what America is incredibly well known for? That is torturing people that they want to get information out of and torturing prisoners, people that they've imprisoned without any due process. Also, shouldn't be torturing anyone but like this is again another thing tony gilroy is not afraid to say yeah this is you know the thing we're supposed to think of here immediately and it's very evocative with especially with the doctor is nazi germany and the experiments that they oh, did yeah, they they but, want us to and, th- and that is the way our mind is supposed to go but this is also talking about america and the country that we live in and the things that all governments do when they want to find things out when the the way that they will treat people and dismiss people and destroy people and and the way they do it the headphones where we can't hear the sound but you can see Bix reacting to it is so effective 
Well, it's about complicity, I think, Andor. Mm. It's about, is it possible? Because surely, right, there are people within the imperial system, right, that don't actively work in any kind of like weapons procurement or or the industrial prison complex or the torture complex. They are just there, you know, whatever, trading natural resources or working in, uh, you know, in in cleaning the various facilities or something like that. The question and or asks is, is it possible to be to have clean hands if you are associated with or working for or helping in any way to support a regime that will do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, and it's also really interesting because, you know, Saul, uh, Super Producer Saul just put into the chat, like, talking about, you know, are these the people who built the Death Star? And so that leans into this other really interesting question, which has been a conversation, you know, but for fans since the first Star Wars came out, but also like, you know, there's a joke in Clerks or whatever, which is like, when the rebels blew up the Death Star, how many like innocent, in quotes, people died who that was just their day job? Well, now there's an even more tragic bent to it, which was how many people who were working there actually right. didn't have a choice at who all. Who were slave labor. Yeah, who were slave labor, slave who labor. were kidnapped, like we know happened, you know, with the first order to make their stormtroopers. It yeah, it's so sad and, it's and s- absolutely tragic. Yeah. Um, back on Narkina 5, we understand that Cassian has been steadily preparing some form of escape. Like he goes to the bathroom during a shift and then takes like three saws at some kind <laughs> of pipe, you know, yeah. and, and the, I guess the, the, the hope is that over weeks and months that eventually this will go somewhere. Yeah. Meanwhile, the Imperial goons come down. Cassian and another inmate take note of, one, how many they are and what they're wearing uh, and what this means about what surfaces inside the facility are deadly and what aren't. Um, And Cassian kind of decides our best chance is we strike when they're coming down here. We, Mm -hmm. We strike when they're here. Meanwhile, Bix is absolutely broken and it's unclear how much longer she can resist giving up Cassian and and the information about him. We go to Coruscant where Mon Mothma is speaking out against the Empire's new public order legislation in the Senate, but things are simply far too gone. She's shouted down by the rest of the senators. Those motherfuckers are corrupt. Like they are just shouting her down. It's done. Well, I mean, here's the thing, you know, like Everybody but wants to be on a winning side. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Oh, ain't so, that the truth? Yeah. Ain't that the truth? So it's like if uh, not making any excuses for people who throw in with fascism, imperialism, et cetera, or authoritarianism. You know, I'm not saying it's like an easy decision to be like, well, I'll give up my entire life and go on the run, I guess, to the outer rim. At the same time, you could see the formulation where people are like, well, fuck it. Who's who is confronting this? Who's mm-hmm. fighting this? Who, what, what, what force can possibly overthrow this? It's either get with the program or get dead. Uh, and so everybody has made their decisions. The, the Senate is completely whatever it was, the imperfect thing that it was during the Clone Wars, during the uh, Republic era. It's gone. And uh, Mon Mothma is just in despair about it as she she gets in her car to leave and her driver tells her oh you're uh i've been told to tell you your cousin is uh back in town she's waiting for you at the embassy uh 
we know that her cousin is going to be Vel. Back on Arcana 5, rumors are spreading. Apparently, something has happened down on level two. What happened is kind of unclear. Kino Loy is like, everybody shut the fuck up. Just get on task, okay? Yeah, he's Do close to being let out. He has that's yeah. how they manipulate him. It's this idea of turning almost like turning snitch, but like turning prison guard on the people sure. who he's looking after. They know he doesn't want to get fried and he only has 217 shifts left when we meet him. For a comparison, Cassian has like 2,817 or something. So like he is just so, he feels like he is so close to getting out and he's so yeah. close to getting Olaf out who only has 40. Yeah. You know, he feels like there is an end in sight and that puts blinkers on him to just say, keep your head down and you'll be okay. Yeah, stay on program and, and we'll get out. Later that night, Cassian is kind of probes Kino. He's like, hey, you ever think about escaping? Kino's like, are you crazy? I'm not going to fucking talk about this. It's like, do you know how many guards are on the level? <laughs> like, what's going on? And then this is where the uh, title of the episode comes from. He goes, listen, you think they make the effort to listen to us? Mm -mm. They have us in the fucking palm of their hand here. They fry us at will. You think they're actually going through and going the extra mile and sitting there listening to the microphones? They, they don't need to. Right now. They're not, no one is listening. No one cares. Kino just rolls over and tries to go to sleep. Mothma finds Vel at her apartment talking to her daughter. Uh, and, of course, this is very anxiety-inducing. She, When her daughter goes away, she's like, what's going on? Where's Luthen? What, like, what are you up to? What are you doing? Vel is up to something. It's very clear. She wouldn't be here if she wasn't. But what that is, what Luthen has in store, what the network is doing, she won't say. There are things in motion and they're risky, but she won't say anymore. Um, Deirdre, our good friend, updates Major <laughs> Partagas. She believes there's a connection to the rebel activity on Ferrix and the raid on Aldani. Partagas is like, that's very interesting. I want you to follow that. Um, and meanwhile, we find out that Deirdre is using Marva as bait for, uh, for Cassian Andor. Back in the prison. Rumors of a massacre are intensifying, uh, and it seems like it's true. A hundred men cooked. Could it be? Could that have happened? Is the empire that depraved? Um, but it's important, Kino tells them, listen, we need to act like we don't know anything. We haven't heard anything because we have a better chance for survival if we just act like we're completely ignorant to what's going on. Uh, we go to dinner with Cyril and his mom. Uh, and later on after that, he waylays Deidre outside her office, and it's clear that he has become obsessed yeah. with her. She's and like his fascist, like, God. Like, he wants to be a part of it. He thinks they're on this same kind of yeah, crazy mission. mission. Yeah, to get... Now, people, I've seen people be like, "Who? what kind of characters? Who is this? I gotta tell you. The people that you see online who just, like, stand for random billionaires. Mm-hmm. You know, who are like, yep. oh, you don't, you know, like for whether it's Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or whoever, who just kind of like mindlessly, that is this person. Yeah. That also, is who Cyril is. He is the, it's not even, it's not even particularly about Deidre. It's about this fascinate. he feels powerless. Yeah. And so he wants to feel like 
He's part of this growing power. He wants to be on the winning team, and he wants to prove himself by catching this guy who is thumbing his nose at imperial power, which he so, you know, devoutly worships, and he feels like Deidre and him. They're kindred spirits in this. She understands. Yeah, it's it's fanatical. It's, it's, you know, we see it. We see it online. It's, you know, yeah. Saul was just pointing out what I was going to say. He's a he's a guy on 8chan. He's the Riddler in Matt Reeves' Batman. He is someone who is so obsessed with his own role in this war that he sees coming that he will do anything. And he has become horribly obsessed. And what I found very interesting about this interaction is Deirdre is horrified she he grabs her he he grabs grabs her and he's in her face and she is like i could literally have you killed like fuck off but the thing i find really interesting that i can't tell and this is a really great bit of ambiguous storytelling will she see that he could be a terrifying terrible weapon that she can wield or is there something about his behavior that means that she constantly pushes him back that's what i can't see next I don't, I found it very ambiguous as well, the way she responded to it. Like, why not have this guy put away? Isn't this what you want? Yeah, but but clearly, for whatever reason, she doesn't. And I'm I'm really eager to find out what her angle in all of this is. And also, I am eager and hopeful that whatever end waits both Deirdre and Cyril, it is horrible. Horrible and the end. The end, um, end, end. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I always, I'm like, God bless this being a prequel because I'm like, I had never heard of these people in the modern I time. Got, I so... hope to fuck they got blown up on <laughs> so, in some rebel up. attack. You know? <laughs> Inside ISB, Deidre gets some very, very exciting news. A rebel pilot using a stolen uh, Imperial nav unit has been captured. We go to uh, Mon Mothma's apartment. She's meeting with her her banker, her money launderer, Tay, who she uh, contacted a few episodes ago to help her out with moving funds around and, and helping with this donation scheme that she's using to access money. Their money laundering program is in a spot of trouble. There's been a big movement of money and the only way to cover for it is to deposit more money in to kind of cover mm-hmm. the hole that has been left by this money has been moved to the Rebel Alliance, we assume. So this means Mothma needs like 400,000 credits somewhere. She needs to get it from somewhere to put the money in her bank account so she can cover these tracks. Um, the only way to get that kind of money is from apparently a Chandralin crime lord, Davos Calden. And Tay has it all set up. And while... It's clear that Mothma, we don't get a definitive yes or no at the end of this conversation, but it's happening. Sorry, it's going to happen, folks. Deidre has turned up some solid leads from the torture of this rebel pilot. And this pilot is one of Anto Krieger's network. This is Krieger is the man who saw Guerrera wisely, it turned out, refused to meet. And probably saving uh, Saw Gerrera's network in the process, mm-hmm. deciding I don't trust this Correct. guy. I think they're sloppy and they're a separatist. I'm not dealing with them. Good Good read on the situation from Saw Gerrera. <laughs> we learned that there's apparently going to be a rebel raid on Spellhouse. So the ISB is trying to figure out how they can 
cover the arrest of this pilot to make it look like something else happened to the pilot so that the rebels go through with this raid and they can scoop up this entire network on Spellhouse. Back on Narkina 5, Olaf collapses. Men carry him back to the bridge and to his cell, and eventually a med tech is called. But, of course, rather than treat the man, he just injects him with a euthanasi- yeah, euthanization drug. Basically says, gives him a lethal injection. And says he should be thankful because worse things could have happened. And this leads Kino to be like, okay, so do you know what happened down on two? And Kino learns that the rumors of a massacre are true. Go ahead. Yeah, 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 yeah. Basically, like, the thing that is so bleak is the reason the massacre happened is the Empire hasn't actually been letting people out of prison. It's been yeah. taking them off one floor and funneling them back into another floor but this time, the people on two recognized that the new guy was someone it from was a clerical error. Yeah, it was a. They'll say clerical error, but the real truth is, you're never getting out of prison. You're if well, you get is... released, you're going straight back in, just on a different floor. So they microwaved the entire floor. And at this point, Kino realizes we're never getting out of here. None of us are getting out of here. It doesn't matter how many shifts you have left. You could have one shift left. You're not getting out at the end of that shift. And the end is so good. He's like, okay, there are 12 guards, never more than 12 guards on the floor. And you realize, okay, he's... Kino's in, baby. He's in, baby. This show continues to be... Absolutely fucking incredible. Yeah. Seven, eight, nine, that has been for me the real this is a show of arcs. And seven, eight, nine for me has been like, that is my arc where I just think they are doing the most yeah. powerful stuff and getting it right. Powerful. I am I am always trying to learn more about the the realities of the prison system and about like abolition and 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 the ways that prisoners are exploited and how we can hopefully change that in the future. And it's really interesting because I saw the new Henry Selick Netflix movie, Wendell and Wild, which is a kid's stop-motion animation movie, and I saw it at the Aero Cinema, and that is an anti-private prisons movie. The villains in the movie are people creating private prisons to create a school-to-prison pipeline in, in their neighborhood. And it was kind of amazing to then a couple of days later watch these episodes and see that this is another story where people are contesting that and talking about that and shining a light on that. You watch these episodes of them in the prison on Narkina 5 in these horrific labor spaces, which ironically are probably much cleaner and and kind of seemingly better run than than the real ones in in prisons now. You know, I mean, you have companies like... In America is Walmart, McDonald's, uh, Victoria's Secret, uh, the U.S. military, which is very realistic to hear, who use prison labor that is indentured servitude, you know. And it is just kind of mind-blowing and to me hopeful and radical to see these stories coming out now where they are shining a light on that. And I hope that when people watch these episodes and, and if they watch Wendell and Wild, which is very beautifully animated and Jordan Peele is, is a co-writer on it, it, I hope that when people see that and say, oh, that's horrific, like they realize that that is actually a reflection of something that's really going on, which as we always say, is one of the most powerful things about storytelling and especially genre storytelling. Yeah, this this episode really made me think about the video game. This video game came out in 2013, indie game called Papers, Please. And it 
is about you play as this border inspector, immigration inspector wow. in this fictional uh, authoritarian country in the year 1982. And you basically have to, people come up to your booth and you have to stamp their papers and decide whether they get in or not. And there's various alerts happening about, you know, ter- quote unquote terrorist attacks and whatever. And the thing that really the mechanic is primarily you stamping papers, ex- you know, examining them and stamping them. And the thing that that it made me realize is part of what is so insidious about like a power like the empire or like in this game is how it makes you complicit with everything you do. Mm -hmm. Like stamping the papers makes you. It seems like you're not doing anything, but you are upholding a system. You're literally signing your name on everything that happens. It's like, yes, these, these men are prisoners. And one might say, well, they still have a choice. They could decide to get to, to die. Like, uh, you know, the the fact that it's, it's the making illusion them of choice, this it's the illusion of choice. Right. The fact that this system is making them complicit in the building of weaponry. We don't mm-hmm. know what these are. Right. We but don't like, know yet. But I think we can the way that they look and the shape of them, we can assume that they're building something that will be used as weaponry or military or maybe to build space cruisers or or stuff. I think the most interesting thing will be, and I'd love to see this, and again, this is something we got hinted at in The Last Jedi, is um, obviously we know this is being made for the Empire, but I wouldn't be surprised if some of it ended up in the hands of the Rebellion because that was always yeah. the, the problem there was like people are being exploited on, on both sides, you know? Yeah, I just, I, I love that, that to Papers, Please, as well. Like it's the, um, you know, we've talked about this so much but like it also reminds me of um you know shadows of the colossus oh yeah. where it's like you shadow of the colossus where you end where you think you're the hero the entire time but really you've been complicit in this horrific genocide and you kind of learn that as you go along and i really i just feel very grateful that people are telling these stories that will hopefully put people into the mindset to learn more about this stuff and to it's, you know, the the term radical imagination comes up in a lot in, in abolitionist conversation, which is like, imagine something better. And sometimes to imagine something better, people need to realize that something bad is already going on. And I think that this is a really great use of sci-fi and analogous storytelling to talk about these kind of things, whether it's this rise of fascism or the way that prisoners and incarcerated people are exploited. And it's just... I was I was totally blown away. And that final moment when Andor says to him, so how many guards are on each level? And Kino just turns around and says, never more than 12. I was just crying. I was like, oh my God, this is just... Also, going back to what we were talking about before, you're essentially now at a situation where you are supporting incarcerated people in breaking out of a government prison. I mean, this is what... You know, this is, I'm saying. This is, again, the things that this show very effectively argues for are completely rad or like in the context of pop storytelling are immensely radical, immensely radical. Yeah. Uh, one of the like, it, you know, one of the things I, I, that I've always thought about vis-a-vis Star Wars is, man, there's a lot of crime. You know, you have this empire that has, you know, more or less come to force on a 
program of law and order, right? Bring mm-hmm. chaos to the galaxy, stop all these wars, right? Stability, et cetera. So why is it that these crime families are so vibrant? And I think something that something uh, that Tay said, this meeting with Mothma and Tay, really kind of hammered home what it's all about. And that's, first of all, in this extremely authoritarian structure, there's still there's still people who like Tay say some say something about um, well you know when we when we this crime lord comes what am I gonna you know what are people gonna think and Tay's like people are gonna think the same thing they think about everybody else which is you want to take care of yourself you want to take mm-hmm. care of your money you want to you want to you know you want to make sure that you have the things that you uh, need. Uh, and you're going to break the rules a little bit to get them. And that really tracked for me in the sense that it's another form of of leverage that the empire has over you. Yes. Which is this. I'm sure the empire understands and the emperor understands and the ISB understand that there's various powerful senators, et cetera, that are money laundering and all this kind of stuff. That's very useful if you should ever need to, like, arrest them, right? You could mm-hmm. do it at any time. The, uh, you know, uh, they are looking to protect their assets. They're going to do it extra legally. They're going to move money around, maybe offshore, off planet, to some other outer rim galaxy, hidey hole. And what better piece of leverage to swoop them up if they step out of line with the imperial program? Mm-hmm. Right. You've got now you've you make make people break the rules so that you can arrest them at any time and also, is part of the imperial isn't program. It, isn't that also, again, a reflection of the way that the system does work where there's oh, one yeah. rule for people on the lowest rung of society yes, and then there's one for the top. So it's like even people who maybe are more politically aligned and that you agree with, you might be shocked when you find out in real life that they are trading stocks without, you know, yes. selling stocks based on political knowledge they have or because you know what? Once they become comfortable and want to be in that space and stay in it, it's much harder for them to say, well, you should stop doing this thing that's illegal when they are also doing it. So it's, 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 I find it very interesting how textual this show is being. Greed is such a, is such a handmaiden to dictatorship because it's really like, you know, uh, people are willing to go a pretty long way to make sure their taxes stay low. <laughs> you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, like, yeah. And, and to stay comfortable and to keep, yeah. it's the ultimate, um, it's the ultimate way of breaking down, you know, solidarity is you blame someone else and say they have a better life than you or the reason your life is bad is because of them. While at the same time, there's people living, you know, it's the, it's the page from, uh, you know, Batman. I think it's from, the long Halloween or year one and and Batman says, you know, you've eaten well, you've been fed, but now there's a problem because I'm not going to let it happen anymore. Those people, they're wealthy, they're rich, they're the empire. Also, there's a really great part of this show that is exploring that with the people that surround Mon Mothma and the people who make money off the empire and are willing to stay quiet and not notice the horrors that they wrought because of how comfortable their lives are, which I just think is... Really interesting. There's an aspect of a uh, of the uh, yet you participate in society meme of mm-hmm, this too, mm-hmm. which is that this is a product 
this story is the is the jewel, one of the jewels in a corporate crown, a yep. multi-million slash billion dollar corporate entity that is, you know, inextricably part of the fabric of a lot of the injustices that are there being foisted upon people right now, which is mm-hmm. which leads to the other, you know, part of the thing that I think about with this story is like, you know, how do you how do you reform and is it possible to reform? Like, is it possible to reform a system that seems like it's grown beyond anybody's control? And that in in effect, I mean, I think this is what I uh, oftentimes think about, like the our own like Western neoliberal system, global system, is that it's just kind of grown beyond anybody's any one person's ability or a group of people's ability to meaningfully affect it. It's like a beast that's been set loose that's just doing what it yeah, wants the, to do. Yeah, the beast of capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a really interesting because I think that's why even in the scope of being owned by someone like Disney, you know, of, of being part of this corporate machine, it is pretty cool when somebody can tell a story that might yeah. inspire a lot of people to get together and say, well, I think this is bad in this fictional space. Maybe it's also bad in in a real space. But like you say, it can become very overwhelming to begin to think about what that real definitive change would look like. And I think that's why something that's really powerful that people can do is to be in community with other people, to do mutual aid, to help your neighbors. Like, guess what? You can't solve the homelessness crisis unless you're really rich. Go and buy some houses and give it to people or repatriate land. But like you can give you can give you can make people lunch and you can go out and you can give it to them. You know, you can make a difference to one person, to two people, to three people. And that can kind of be the start. Of, that is I th- one of the strongest takeaways I had from this episode mm-hmm. when, when Cassian is inspiring his fellow inmates to pick up the slack for Olaf. You know, Olaf is holding the back and it could potentially be deadly to all of them. But instead of acting with, you know, venom or like or some kind of grievance at Olaf pulling Mm -hmm. all of them back towards the bottom of the ladder, he's instead like, okay, you move over here. You come over here. You're able to do this better. Let me do this. And then and that's exactly the thing you're talking about. All which is to say is. Yeah, he's, Andor is incredible. It's so good. And like that last moment with Kino, that's Kino understanding that even if he is not willing to be part, to risk himself and put himself out there, he can share this information he has that might allow someone else to do it and help other people. It's really good stuff. Can't wait to continue to talk about Andor as the season moves on. Up next, some news. We're going to talk about uh, 2022 in horror and we're going to be talking about the DC movie debut of The Rock in Black Adam. X-Ray Vision is brought to you by Smile Actives. Are you conscious about your smile due to stains? I've been there. Are your teeth aging you? Popular food and drink are known to stain teeth. Beverages like... Hold on, let me take my last sip here. Coffee, which I'm drinking right now. And wine, stained teeth over time. So what can you do to brighten your smile? Well, you should give Smile Actives a try. Smile Actives is safe. Good. That's the number one thing you need it to be. Smile Actives is safe. What's the the next thing? Does it work? Yes. Smile Actives is effective. 
what about is it like complicated or like multiple steps? Do I have to like, you know, like do I have to like get in a raincoat and then like jump, uh, do jumping jacks and then like heat something? No, it's easy to use. And you put all that stuff together. You have a beautiful, smiling, bright, shiny teeth smile. 97% of Smile Active users in a clinical trial reported up to six shades whiter on average. Six shades. All within 30 days. Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile? Well, I have the ad read for you. Before you visit a dentist, which, by the way, I want to say you should do that. I know that it can be it, – it, uh, it gives me anxiety. Maybe it's been a while. If you can do it, if you have the medical plan to do it, try and do it. You should do it. It's good for you. You should know that their whitening treatments, these are the treatments of dentists, can be very expensive. And it's not just the price. You also have to book the appointment, which who likes doing that? You have to schedule the time away from work and family and your and your PlayStation console to go sit in a dentist's office chair undergoing a procedure and they're making small talk while they're digging in your gums. It's a hassle. Fortunately, now you can try Smile Actives at home or – I love or anywhere. Where else are you <laughs> – you could go to the mall and try Smile Active. You could go to the taco stand and just like put it on a put it on a toothpaste uh, uh, and put it on your toothbrush and just try it. You can do it anywhere, anytime. Smile Actives offers a safe and affordable alternative to those expensive whitening procedures. Simply add Smile Actives Pro Whitening Gel to your regular toothpaste. That's it. It's been formulated with PolyClean technology, folks. What's PolyClean technology? I can't even get into it. There's so much clean ingredients involved in the PolyClean. I can't get into it. But I'll tell you what that technology does do. It boosts stain removal and delivers active whitening ingredients into your teeth grooves. You might be thinking, okay, the grooves are good, but what about the crannies? Into the crannies as well. So you can get better whitening inside the grooves and crannies. Smile Actives makes a teeth whitening gel that can simply be added to your toothpaste every single time you brush your teeth. Folks, could get easier than that. No changing your routine unless you're not brushing your teeth, in which case, why? No extra time, yet people will start commenting on your whiter, brighter smile in mere days. Smile Actives is the whitening boost your favorite toothpaste needs to give you the smile you deserve. Visit smileactives.com slash x-ray today to receive our special buy one, get one free offer for plus Free shipping and handling. That's smileactives.com slash x-ray. Okay, let's start with a quick conversation about DCEU's latest entry, Black Adam, directed by Jame Colette Sarah, starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson as <laughs> Teth Adam, Aldous Hodge as Hawkman, Pierce Brosnan, who's wonderful as Dr. Fate, Noah Centineo as Adam Smasher, Quintessa Swindell as Cyclone, and Sarah Shahi as Adriana Tomas. Uh, I thought this movie was – I actually – there's parts of this movie that I thought were, like, really good. I got to say, Dr. Fate. Dr. Fate. Let's talk about like, – Dr. Fate Dr. was Fate great. And the JSA. And something I will say that Dwayne has been saying from the beginning, I interviewed him for Black Adam uh, – for about Black Adam for the Den of Geek, this cover feature I did. He is very excited about the JSA, and I feel like you can tell that comes through, like – Dr. Fate movie when? That's the biggest question when you come out of this movie is you say, oh. I want to see Pierce Brosnan in that movie. You know, his chemistry with Aldous Hodge as Hawkman is great. It if they so want to do a cool. team I mean, up of the two of them, even though you can tell 
that the movie has likely been through many forms and many edits. <laughs> many, many, you know, many which, forms. Which, which potentially makes it a little bit harder to understand the character backstories and the connections between them. The performances of the JSA especially, they sell it. Like you you know they care about each other. You, I want to see, I loved Quintessa as Cyclone. And I also think whoever it was at Warner Brothers who designed the Cyclone costume A, I loved it works so well with Maxine's personality, which is that she is a theater nerd, loves the Wizard of Oz, like, and also is this legacy hero from, you know, the first DC, female DC hero who was the original Ma Hunkle. People forget that and it because she was in a humor book. But um, I think the way that Cyclone's visuals were brought to screen, that's one of the first original new ways that I've seen a superpower portrayed on screen in a really long time. I There's nothing else that looks like it. And yeah. that's very hard to do 20 years into I, I, the superhero is, spectrum. That is the thing that really struck me about, in addition to Brosnan's wonderfully, like, perfect casting. Just perfect, perfect casting. Perfect casting. Is, is how cool his powers lift the oh. costume the way they were the, the deployed. fractal crystals the of it the alien magicness of yeah. it where it seemed very very you know for lack of a better word not to not to evoke a different uh, comic book company but look very strange look pierce had always wanted to play dr strange so i'm glad they're kind of leaning into or i should say pierce was a big fan of the dr strange comics but yeah, I, I thought Dr. Fate was such a standout. I loved how much they just committed to the weirdness of that power and of that hero. He is possessed when he puts on the helmet. The helmet possesses him and he yeah. sort of is its vessel. That is so cool. I thought that Noah and Quintessa were very sweet together. There was great young camp chemistry there. I would love to know more. I thought it was a good twist on expectations. We had seen the trailer where we see this huge X-Mansion-inspired area with a big blackbird-looking yeah. plane coming out of it. And we kind of assumed that would be Dr. Fate's uh, space and he would be the Charles Xavier of the JSA. But it's actually the other way around. It's it's Hawkman. That's Hawkman's uh, compound. And the JSA are, you know, his creation, along with potentially Amanda Waller. I find that a little bit that was, there's that a little bit hard was, for me to swallow. There's yeah. there's some there's some canonical issues uh with well, introducing Amanda Waller. A, let's, let's make let's make Waller Nick Fury after the fact yeah. decision. It's very <laughs> like it's very clear to me <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's, it's very clear to me that those scenes Viola yeah. Davis's scenes were filmed like in a day, it like maybe feels at her house. like it because also <laughs> I mean look, Nick Fury as the head of SHIELD Definitely a war criminal, but Amanda Waller is like a legitimate war criminal who consistently sends people to their deaths. And at the beginning yes. of James Gunn's very good, and I think frankly underrated, as you will know if you listen to this podcast, Suicide Squad movie, she literally sends out a whole team just to die. She is yep. evil, and that is the joy of Amanda Waller. She is a complex horrible character who does terrible things for what she believes to be the greater good. So when Hawkman's entire personality is based on not killing, great, great conflict to introduce there against someone like Teth Adam, who just loves to kill people. I mean, loves, loves more it. than just anything loves else to kill Dwayne people. Dwayne Johnson, did you know he wanted to kill so many people? Now you do. He I, loves it. He's I, killing so I, I many wanna, people. Before, uh, 
I want to talk about the things I liked about it before I get to that, but fuck, man. I mean, I don't know that we need quite so many jokes like as a guy's body is like crashing to earth to be (laughs) turned into liquid that like Teth Adam is like winking and being like, hey, did you like, you know, Hawkman is like, oh, you we need to question that guy. And then Teth Adam looks at the guy he just threw 20 miles away, like as their little speck of a body is like falling to earth. And and Hawkman's like, oh, did you kill that guy? And Teth Adam's like. Whoops. You know, like, yeah, I don't know yeah. that we quite needed that many things. Yes. Um, I, but... Ironically, I actually think I I, I, lo- I love the Shazam movies so much. Like, I, I loved the Shazam Unlike movie. The Rock, I, I loved everything about that. it. <laughs> and I I wish, I I would like to have seen a world where this Black Adam and that darkness and that anger was kind of, in juxtaposed with the other side of Shazam. I think that's really interesting to have those powers together. Hopefully it's something we'll see in the future. Though technically maybe the Superman thing kind of erases the canon of Shazam. I'm not sure. I will say this is a very, I think this is a very fun movie and it's very zeros. To me, it's very our era's like Tim Story, Fantastic Four, like big explosions, crazy effects, funny like mic drop kind of like needle drop moments you know of course it's called black adam they have a man in black needle drop like it feels like you're watching like a zeros blockbuster i i will say i think that i liked it more than i was expecting to is it a good movie uh your mileage i it's i will say this i think that this movie is i think they did a really good job in being conscious of the weaknesses of the movie like listen black adam the rock you've seen a rock movie you know the rock is never going to be in a role in which he's the, the rock. rock's character is you're ever wondering oh is the rock's character going to make it i don't know like this the rock's character is getting its ass kicked so in this case in they were like the not. rock is immortal that's no right. No question. So, and they did a really great thing, which was being con- again being conscious of that kind of weakness. Is the emotional center of this movie is the relationship between Hawkman and Doctor Fate, yep. and like they don't give it a ton, but it's you feel it there in all of their scenes, and that's the emotional through line that balances out the fact that Black Adam is just out here throwing yeah. dudes and like I, through fucking windows. I actually and, and love electrocuting them. I I I wish there'd been. I think one of the things that's most inventive, aside from like I said, like I love the Cyclone powers, where it's like Maxine it is so cool, is, yeah. is is a gymnast, and and it's you never really seen anything like it, and it's so cool. Aside from that, I thought something that was quite cool. I uh, until it became like you know mass murder, which you're kind of again. My my comic book brain was battling with my enjoyment of blockbusters brain because I I this stuff is so in intrinsic into my soul that I was doing a lot of like would that work would that could that be but one thing I thought was really cool I actually did really like the fact that when he punches someone they like kind of cartoonishly looney tunes fly away but then I did realize after he did it like a hundred times it's because if he punched someone and you you couldn't make it PG-13 if he just punched a hole through someone and they died in front of you you know so it's, it's a very interesting uh combination I will say something I find very ironic because you talked about the heart of um, the movie, which I totally agree with you. I think the JSA and especially Hawkman and Dr. Fate is this beating heart of this movie. I find it very ironic that they didn't want to have 
The Rock and Black Adam in Shazam, but then they essentially introduced like a kid sidekick character, which basically could have just been Billy in Shazam, you know, or something. Yes. I found that very interesting. I also, I have to say, in the annals of movie sequels, I am usually a kid sidekick fan. I love when Robocop gets like a kid sidekick in Robocop 2 and you've got like the weird, you know, drug plotline the frank miller kind of inspired one and then i i love john connor obviously icon of my life first crush this child sidekick did not hit in the same way for me i didn't yeah but I, same here. I i i wish there'd been more of that focus on hawkman and dr fate and the jsa but i also understand the nature of trying to make a giant blockbuster and something that i have uh, a lot of empathy for as this is something that we have followed very closely this movie came out and was at Warner Brothers at an incredibly complex time. Very, very So the fact that it came out and we kind of went to the cinema and saw it and enjoyed it is sort of a miracle (laughs) Um, with everything that's going on there. I'm very interested to see what happens next because to me, where does... My brain cannot help but go to... Where does this movie sit in the existence of the James Gunniverse that is about to happen? Well, I mean, I've... I've talked to you and Super Producer Saul and Super Producer Chris about this offline and different things, but I understanding the the close relationship that The Rock has with this source material, the kind of antipathy that he seems to have for the Shazam series, and the fact that this is like now a huge part of the ongoing DCEU, man, I would not be surprised if there are some if we a year from now, a year and a half from now, are hearing like rumored, uh, reading rumored reports in the Hollywood Reporter from anonymous sources, sources, anonymous about some kind of conflict, anonymous <laughs> wizards, uh, some kind of conflict between Gunn and The Rock about the direction of Black Adam and other stuff. I'm, it feels I'm very like intrigued, and obviously yeah. we have to talk about it, like the the post credit scene that. Tells you a lot about where whoever was behind this movie and whoever made the decision, which it sounds like was very driven by The Rock and uh, and Danny Garcia, his his ex wife. The Rock takes flat out says, "Yeah, We've been, we were working for years to make this happen." And Danny and here it is his his ex wife, who's his business partner, who is uh, you know Danny Garcia. She is Henry Cavill's talent manager, so we can imagine how that came about. Um, it suggests to me that they are leaning into a, a certain part of the DCEU that I believed was uh, probably in its in the past in the rearview window. But we see um, we see Henry Carvel, and he's Superman, and he comes and he's like, like don't be being a bad guy. Let's have it. Let's have a talk. I just have to be the guy, the nerd guy, yeah, because that is who we are. But like. I do not believe for any one second, yeah, that Superman would ever even be in the same room as Amanda Waller. The Suicide Squad goes against everything that Superman believes in, everything he was taught by his beloved parents. I will say this is the Superman if it is, you know, he has a different suit, but he's not in the black suit. He's not in the kind of more, the more classic um, suit that we've seen him in before. This is a more blue and red suit this little bit comic booky but this is still a superman who has killed many people so i guess it's a different superman but to me i feel like amanda waller could not call superman 
That is my feeling. Megan Waller could not call Superman. And moreover, again, like you laid out all the reasons why this is, you know, kind of a different Superman. But Superman would also not, at the behest of Amanda Waller, go to meet like Black Adam, a, a, a Kai who had just got done killing three, four, five hundred people like some of them on television and mm-hmm. stuff like Superman would not be like, yeah, you're right, Amanda. I need to go meet with this guy and have a heart to heart with this mass murderer. Yeah, I got him. Also, he, you know, he he says something, he, I think, along the lines of like, um, oh, nobody's made us this feel worried before. I'm paraphrasing, but he's like, nobody's yeah. had this much conversation. But does... Black Adam not technically have the same powers of Shazam. So shouldn't yeah. Shazam it I find it I will be this is this is my takeaway. I'll be very interested to see how the ramifications and ripple effect of things that come from this movie end up impacting things going forward because there yeah. are some things to me that don't necessarily um immediately appear to gel. But you know what? I'm also open to it. Like, this is the I'm world we live in. This is happens. the IP. I want to see more of the JSA. Um, I think Henry Carville, I understand why they cast him as Superman. I would love to get to see him as more of a classical style Superman instead of like the breaking somebody's neck style Superman. So <laughs> who knows? You know, I, I'm interested. And this is obviously like a big passion project for Dwayne. But I'm very interested to see how a man, James Gunn, who made a Superman is a murderer horror movie called Brightburn. I'm very interested what the to see what the DC universe looks like under him post this movie. I am as well. And again, Black Adam, it was pretty good. It's fun, I man. Go see it in the I cinema. Was... Like eat a popcorn and and watch the rock punch people through walls and listen to Smashing Pumpkins. Okay, my only I will say something this movie does that I've been waiting for these zeros throwback movies to do because these are very like zero z. Yes. Throwback superhero blockbusters, right? X Men Two, X- kind exactly. Of movie. This movie, Smashing Pumpkins, was a good start, but it should have, when the main character accidentally brought the rock, aka Black Adam, back to life, they should have played "Bring Me to Life" by Evanescence. I need them to commit. Ah. I need them to commit to the new metal. Morbius, that movie, more people would have enjoyed it if they'd have just put new metal in it and made it be like, yeah, this is like Queen of the Damned. This is like we're really going back there. So Black Adam. On the right way, but let's let's embrace the zeros more if we're going to do it. Let's do it, baby. Up next, 2022 in horror. Spooky season is over, but the terror, the terror never leaves us, Rosie. It never leaves. So now we're going to talk about some of your 2022 horror highlights. It's been a great year for horror. I haven't oh, seen everything, so good. but the stuff that I've seen is great. Where would you like to start with some of the best uh, 2022 horror movies? You know what? Let's start. It's one of the ones that we both seen. And it was, I feel like, one of those big, funny word of mouth hits. It ended up being the number one movie on the weekend it was released because of great timing by the studio. Let's talk about Barbarian. Oh, gosh. And by the way, <laughs> see it now on HBO Max. If you yeah. have HBO Max as a service, you can watch it and right now. If, if you haven't seen the, it, skip in this the, part. In the even warm embrace of your home. <laughs> yeah, just don't even like, just don't even listen to us saying we liked it. Just go watch it first and then come back. This movie's so great. Made by Zach Kreger. Totally took me by surprise. Georgina Campbell in the lead role with Bill Skarsgård, who is basically 
our modern scream queen. He's delightful. It really is our modern he is a scream horror queen. darling. He was in the brilliant villains, which I love with Michael Monroe, obviously Pennywise. Um, <laughs> you know, it's. I'm not going to even get into spoilers with this movie because the truth is that you just got to go and watch it. But it's a very interesting take on the idea of an Airbnb horror movie and the horrors of yes. just letting someone into your home. I saw it at a screening with a interview afterwards with the cast and crew and Zach Kreger had this really interesting origin story for it, which was kind of reading a book by a security expert about all the red flags that women are taught to ignore in yeah. their lives and how they come into play every day. So the movie is so great. There's all these different layers. Who is the barbarian? Who is kind of the the hero? What do you do when you're put in an unbelievable situation? It has a lot of uh, political subtext that I really enjoyed. Georgina Campbell is brilliant. She's a really brilliant British actor, and I'm so glad that she's getting her shine here. Um, Justin Long is also in the movie. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, <laughs> but he's another modern. He's he's actually the queen, the modern scream queen. If we look back to like Jeepers Creepers and Tusk and all the great yeah. stuff he's been in, um, that one is a riot. It's a shame you can't, you actually can still see it in a theater, I have to say. I think a lot of AMCs are still showing it because it's kind of been a slow burn. But it's so wild. You will not guess where it's going. You won't. And if you like to dig into the kind of analogous nature of it, I think it has a very, a lot of interesting things to say about the state of kind of where things are, not just on like a feminist misogynist whatever level but also just like really interesting things about america and kind of yeah, the living the space living spaces yeah, about, and the monsters like, of america and kind of what yeah. the horror stories of america are i yeah i thought that was just that, you know, that's a like, great surprise about like middle class striving yep. for a better life through real estate like it reminded me of Pacific Heights. I don't know if you ever, you've yeah, ever yeah, seen yeah. the oh Michael my God. thriller that movie. Pacific Heights. Oh. It reminded me in the setup yeah. and the kind of way different things would unfold. It reminded, it gave me that same kind of feeling of living space, yeah. of the terror of a living space and the hopes and fears and And letting someone people, into your space. Pacific yes. Heights also streaming free, actually. Pluto, Tubi, and I think uh, Watch Peacock. It. Very, That's very a cool really great double bill suggestion. So yeah, that's one of them. Uh, the next two, I would definitely say. Um, oh, folks, you know, in for it with these. <laughs> X, uh, X uh, by Ty West and Pearl. I am a Ty West, like, diehard superstan from the old, when, like, when, you know, Mumble Gore was a thing and it was, like, all the guys who were made, like, You're Next and uh, Horrible Way to Die and all these kind of old horror movies that were coming out in, like, the 2010s-ish onwards and, um, so I was really excited for this. I got to go see it at the New Beverly. It was really cool. Ty West did a Q&A afterwards. X is a, store, a Texas Chainsaw Massacre inspired exploitation horror about a group of people who go to record a porn movie in Texas right, somewhere. somewhere. And yeah. it's, and it's, uh, Kid Cudi, Scott Mascudi is in it. Um, Brittany Snow, she's incredible. Mia Goth. Is... Uh, Mia Goth, who is doing double duty in that movie. Uh, and you will learn why as you watch it. Um, <laughs> also, Jenna Ortega, who I love, coming up yeah. as one of my favorite like genre people. I think she's so great. And it is really fun. It's really weird. I think it's quite... It's super weird. It's super weird. It's su There's a great moment 
where they there's like a there's a musical scene, but not like a musical sequence. It's just them all singing. The sex is filmed really interestingly. I personally felt like it had a lot of cool stuff to say about sex and and aging and and the oh, and, yeah. and desire. I think that is quite divisive. I'm not sure everyone about sees feeling, it that way. But about I think feeling there's something like so powerful about feeling desired and yes. then that is taken away from you. That exploration of what happens when you don't feel like when you when a person doesn't feel desired yeah. anymore is part of the really intriguing exploration that underpins this super wild and gory like don't this is not some this is not some you know hereditary-esque like slow burn like this is like gory people are getting eaten by alligators people are getting murdered people's heads are getting caved in like it is real real gory and it is wonderfully edited it's really cool and then Ty West and Mia Goth came up with this idea on the set and they filmed it directly afterwards they filmed a prequel that is a completely different style of movie called Pearl that's set in like the 1920s and it stars Mia Goth as Pearl, who you will meet when you watch X. That is an absolutely wild fever dream of a movie. It's beautiful. It looks like Wizard of Oz inspired. It is strange. It's kind of this exploration of a serial killer, of, of somebody who is so disenchanted with life and can't imagine anything better for themselves. It's it's so good. That is a unexpected new franchise. And there's also going to yes. be a third one coming out soon that sadly they haven't already made called Maxine with three X's, which is going to continue on a story of one of the characters from, from X. So those were just a total wonderful surprise for me. I, I love a movie that homages another movie well. I felt like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre stuff was done really well. I think Pearl is a great curveball. Some I love both of them, Agreed. but... I think a lot of people probably just like one. And that's also great. Like, I love that it can exist in that way. These movies are also prime examples of how, as these big event movies, superhero movies, Mm -hmm. Marvel movies, have kind of monopolized the box office, there is this vibrant ecosystem of smaller genre movies, mainly horror, like predominantly horror, that are... The other thing that is really thriving in this like post-COVID age of streaming. I think about a lot. um, I don't know if people saw it. I know it was supposed to kind of spark off this new space. I'm not talking about Dark Universe before I say the next thing and you think that's what I'm talking about. RIP to that. But um, Lee Wannell, one of the co-creators of Saw, um, he directed a remake of The Invisible Man with Elizabeth Moss and Oliver Jackson Cohen. And it was unbelievable. It was this dark domestic thriller. It was high tech. It was this totally new take on The Invisible Man. That shit cost $5 million to make. And it made $100 million in its opening weekend. That happened just before COVID. And I was worried that was something we might not get more of. But actually, as Jason pointed out, I actually think a strange effect of huge superhero movies is that we are now getting more low-budget indie horrors because horror can make money at the box office, but off a tiny... you can make it cheap. You can make it cheap. Cheap, cheap, Especially Invisible Man was, um, you know, was actually made in Australia. I I got to visit the set. And And Barbarian, like Barbarian's a great example. Yeah, exactly. And and Barbarian, I think they filmed it in like um, 
somewhere in Eastern Europe. I'm not 100% sure yeah. where, but but the old the old hostel. Yeah, you know, Brett Slavia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I was still scared to go there. But like, I yeah. love that point because I, I remember being on that set and Lee was saying, you know, if you film in Australia, you can film for $5 million and your DP is like the DP of Lord of the Rings or something. Like there's this, you can have this incredible cinematic talent, but you're making the movie for a lot cheaper and that enables you to kind of go in these different directions nobody probably thought of making an invisible man movie that was about like domestic abuse and and emotionally abusive relationships but he did it and it's such a great movie and i i kind of love seeing that so many of these movies are in that space like the next movie i'm going to talk about is like i was like a little bit more expensive but it it's jordan peele so he's earned his money he's made his cheap movies absolutely but um i loved nope i would say some people probably don't Just think yeah i, I- well, it's it's definitely not like I'd say it's a you know, genre movie. It's, it's a genre movie. It's like it's like a a funhouse Spielberg movie. Yeah, is the way yeah. I would. I love. It's got that. the elements of Spielberg with wonder and aliens and like larger than life forces interacting and intersecting with like domestic life. Mm-hmm. But it happens in ways that are. A, a little bit more open-ended than a, yeah. certainly a Spielberg movie and very, very weird. Yeah. I liked it a lot. I loved it. It might be it might be edging up. I mean, I, I like all three of Peele's horror like movies so far, but I, I love them. But this is edging up for me. This was definitely, this is still up there for me for like the coolest movie I saw all year. Like Kiki Palmer does an Akira slide. The costume design is brilliant. Um, the character who also this is whole movie is like a love letter to fries, which if you're from, well, in LA, they're very iconic and the Burbank fries actually plays a massive point, but they did have them all over the country. They were themed uh, electronic stores and and in Nope, the fries UFO themed electronic store, which sadly shut during COVID is a major plot point. There's so much to this movie I love and the kid who works in that shop in the movie is wearing all these like he's wearing like an earth shirt and he's wearing all these like cool underground weird band t-shirts this just is very cool i loved it it's unique take on what it's about if you don't know go watch it um yeah i thought that was a lot of fun i also saw uh bodies 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 again i think that's probably quite a divisive movie i thought it was great uh it's very silly very committed to the bit and does what I think is one of the most unique sticking the landing. Like, watch the movie, even if you feel like... Yeah, yeah. Even if you feel like it's a parody or it's, like, a little bit too much, it's very much in this, like, Gen Z social satire, so that might not land for you. But it is, once you get to the end of the movie, it is absolutely worth it. And I was just... I thought the cast was great. I thought it was very enjoyable. I saw it at, like, Universal Studios with my friends, and I was just like, yes... Good, enjoyable, well done to that movie. And nice to see A24 kind of doing something a bit different, like a slasher movie. And Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was really great. Why, why don't you talk about the old uh, Black Phone? Oh, up next, a Black Phone, directed by Scott Derrickson, based on Black Phone by uh, Joe Hill, um, the, the horror and suspense writer Joe Hill, son of uh, Stephen King. Uh, this is kind of a... Imagine The Sixth Sense meets uh, a a child serial kidnapper story Mm -hmm. and you have Black Phone. Um, I 
in a in a lot of ways, it's the most down the line of the movies yeah. we've talked about. It's the most traditional kind of horror setup movie. I could have imagined renting this movie in like you know as a kid. From yeah, yeah. It also movies, has that you know. Spielbergness to it, even though Spielberg yeah. never veered this deep into horror. It's like that nostalgia of being a kid and the horror of being a kid and the relationships you make with other children and your kind of interactions with the supernatural as a kid. But it's it's underpinned by a really, tr- like a truly creepy performance from Ethan Hawke. Icon. And, and some really, really just wonderful visual scares. Um, it is in some, again, it is in some ways the most like, the most. It's the most horror. Normal, the most horror movie of these movies. But it's also like very, very much worth your time with just the right amount of twists on the kind of standard formula mm-hmm. to make you sit up and go, oh, that was pretty interesting. I, I quite enjoyed it. Yeah. And again, a real tour de force, like scary performance yeah. from Ethan Hawke you're not used to seeing and, in this kind of performance. And Joe Hill is a really scary author. If you like horror books, I remember reading, he has this book called Heart Shaped Box. And that book, like legit, I remember having to stop reading it at night because it was creeping me out so much. So I'm I'm glad that he's also the co-creator of uh, Lock and Key, which is a comic book yeah. that I love and, and I really enjoyed the adaptation too. So yeah, I mean, that's just really the tip of the iceberg. I think those are some of the best, but there's like Smile, which was just such a huge sleeper hit in the box office and people were just terrified by it, which good for them. Uh, Prey, obviously we loved it. We talked about it. It was great. Again, kind of more of this different kind of horror. There's also, I mean, one of the best TV shows on at the moment, full stop, maybe the best. I don't know. I I'm, I, I waver on it, but is Evil, which was this smash hit on um, CBS. The first season was like constantly one of the top rated shows. It was so successful. They moved it to Paramount Plus, of course, because streaming. But it's basically <laughs> the story of a woman who is a like a psychologist who is a cynic played by Katja Herbert and a priest who is played by Mike Coulter and they are teamed up to assess supernatural events for it's a, it's a classic X-Filesian yeah. setup and 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 they basically um are there to assess supernatural things for the for the church, for the Catholic church. But I will say, this is one of the few shows. I'm a, I'm always, oh, you should just jump on wherever. No, I will say, I had watched a random episode of Evil and I didn't get it. When I watched it in the context of the series, it's one of the most horrific episodes of TV I've ever seen. Like this is a show that veers between, the moment I really understood Evil was there's a scene where they're doing an exorcism and they're wearing Blues Brothers sunglasses and it's like completely ridiculous. And the other person on their team who is maybe my favorite character is uh, called Ben and he's played by Asif Manvi and he is so good and the show is just consistently one of the best, most inventive and complex shows and it doesn't side with either side. It's just about the evil of humanity, the the evil things people will do. And it's always kind of questioning the nature of evil, but it also has unbelievable practical effects, super creepy storytelling. It's it's just so good. And season three is all up now on Paramount Plus. And it's one of the best seasons of TV I've seen. And one of my favorite horror things 
that I've seen this year. It's it's really it's really good. You should watch it. Well, up next, we're going to keep the horror conversation creeping and rolling with your interview with Shauna Feste, director of Run Sweetheart Run. Folks, this is it. The last weekend before election day, refreshing Twitter and riding the polar coaster won't change the outcome on November 8th. Right now, there is nothing left to do but persuade and mobilize voters. In October, Crooked beat our goal thanks to over 10,000 of you signing up to help get out the vote. If you haven't signed up yet, it is not too late. There are opportunities right now up until polls close on Tuesday. You don't want to wake up on November 9th wishing you had done more. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash volunteer now. The Crooked Store just launched a bunch of new merch inspired by your favorite Crooked Media podcast, reminding you to unplug, reconnect, and get festive. This holiday season, every order from the Crooked Store will support Vote Save America, every last vote fund to make sure every voice can be heard in the face of unprecedented voter suppression. Get some gift shopping done at the Crooked Store, and while you're there, grab a thing or two for yourself. Check out the new arrivals at crooked.com slash store. I was lucky enough to talk to Shana Feste, who is the director of Run Sweetheart Run, a movie that is now streaming on Amazon Prime, ostensibly about a young single mother who has to go on a dinner date for work and then finds herself uh, running through the streets of LA from this horrible, nightmarish figure that she went on a date with. Uh, me and Shana have a great convo about it, but one thing I will say is that the conversation and the movie delve into sexual assault, harassment, emotional abuse, including some of Shana's own experiences with that. So just a warning, if that's not something that you want to listen to or feel comfortable with, you can jump around in the show notes with the times. But if you do want to listen, this is the interview with Shana, which was just a really great chat about a really exciting movie starring one of my favorite actresses, Ella Belinska. Oh, hey, Shana, it's so great to have you on X-Ray Vision. We're just so happy. I was such a big fan of this film. Oh, that's so cool. Thank you. Yeah, it's such a joy. So I guess starting off, I was just wondering, what was kind of your origin with horror? Was it something that you loved when you were a kid? Was it something you kind of always grew up with? Or was it something that you came to a little bit later in life? Well, I think as a kid, my dad was completely inappropriate and played me everything he wanted to watch. So I was like, you know, watching, you know, Freddy Krueger and, you know, all the the classics, Texas Chainsaw Massacre with him and having like the craziest nightmares of my entire life. (laughs) I did not care at all because he just wanted to watch those movies. So I think in the back of my head, they were always like a love and intrigue of horror. But then I think... I think my career was guided in a way where it was like, what if you don't want to do horror? You know, like, here's a YA story you should check yeah. out. Or here's a love, what about a Nicholas Sparks love story for you? you know, <laughs> it was kind of, and I actually really wanted to get into genre. Um, but it wasn't until Blumhouse that actually they gave me the opportunity to do it. Yeah, and what was that like for you to not only see that that's not true at all and women make horror and you can make horror, but also to then get to make it about a story that is so much about womanhood and the everyday kind of experience of a lot of women. 
Well, I, th- I don't think I could have made any other horror, to be honest. Yeah. When I think of you, I have to have a personal connection to whatever I'm doing. So if you were to ask me what my biggest fear was, it wouldn't be Chucky or, you know, the ghost <laughs> in my room. It would be men is my biggest. That's what I am most scared of in my daily life, sadly. And I love men. I'm married to one. I have two sons. You know, they're great. But the reality of it is, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles and not a day went by where there I was suffering some kind of like indignity, whether it was a billboard that I passed of a, you know, a girl giving a blowjob to a Subway sandwich or <laughs> a guy catcalling me on the bus or letting in a plumber when I'm alone in my apartment and feeling really uncomfortable. Whatever it was, it's such a lived in experience as a woman, right? Yeah. And that I had a really strong personal connection to. So I knew that's what I wanted to, that's what I wanted to say if I was going to make a horror movie. Yeah, I mean, horror has always been this space for this great analogous storytelling and stories that are really about kind of bigger issues. And it's, it's yeah, it's quite wonderful to see a story that so plays into that. And it's also very LA story because of the way it's set. So could you talk a little bit about the origin of the actual idea for Run Sweetheart 1? Obviously, these personal experiences, but when did you get to this idea of kind of the date gone wrong, taken to the most extreme degree? Yeah, well, I went on a date that went wrong Mm. when I was in my 20s. And it was in the Hollywood Hills. And it was, you know, I was a broke student at UCLA. And this guy looked amazing on paper. And I was in my cute little black dress. Mm -hmm. And we went back to his place. And it went bad. And I had to get out of there. And this was before cell phones. So I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't even think I had my purse. I just ran. I was living in um, West LA near UCLA and I ran home. And it was probably about, I started at one in the morning and I got home at probably like 6 a.m. Wow. And some of the things were about things that actually happened to me on that run. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it was a terrorizing experience from A to B and nothing came out of it. You know, it just yeah. went like the next day I went to work and I went to my classes and you just had to press on. Yeah. It's just really shocking how many people have those stories. Yeah. It's rare to meet someone who doesn't, you know, who who doesn't have that horrific story. You know, when we were, there's this part where Cherie looks at Clark Gregg's computer and I just started gathering Creole. I was like, hey, was there ever a guy in your life that maybe you never, that did you wrong and you didn't go to the cops or something happened? Who did you wrong? And it was so horrifying to see how many women were like, oh, put this name on, put this name on. And here we were having this little victory of putting these names on his calendar thinking, and I was like, this is the justice that we're getting right now. Mm -hmm. Even though it did actually feel like some kind of justice because we could put the name on the paper and Mm -hmm. it was from, you know, women that were in electric and grip and catering and PAs. Yeah. And So was there, this is obviously like an incredible personal kind of tale for you, but was there something cathartic in putting it to screen and kind of changing how that story ends? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been sexually assaulted a few times in my life and I've never gotten revenge, you know, (laughs) not even legally. It hasn't happened. And 
I always think about why I am a writer and director, and it is because I get to write my own endings and the ending that I wish I could have lived. Not that I wish I could be a murderer. Well, maybe maybe I do. (laughs) Who knows? But it, it, yeah, it has to feel good, right? It Uh feels good to rewrite your own ending. Um, And, you know, there's a reason that ultimately Ethan is more powerful than we ever expected because that is really what the patriarchy feels like to me. It doesn't feel yeah. like one guy that, you know, he goes to jail and it's over and you're done and you are you live the rest of your life really great. It's not that way at all. It's mm-hmm. the seeds are everywhere that you wouldn't even know. And it, and it always surprises you, the power. Yeah. Um, you know, we had a, we have a world leader that the world might end because of toxic masculinity at the moment, you know, like it's, everywhere and it feels incredibly powerful and impossible to defeat. Yeah, I love that about it. I felt like that was a very real uh kind of representation of how hopeless and kind of powerless we can feel in those situations, even if the person is not exponentially powerful in a way we weren't expecting. So when it came I am I am like a huge Ella Belinska fan. So I, yeah, I, I, when they actually emailed me about watching the movie for the first time, I was like, send it over, baby. I was like, I, I think Ella is so great. So, and finding a lead who can be vulnerable, who can be strong, who can be absolutely believable when we get to that third act turn. How hard was that? And how did you know that Ella was the right person to play Cherie? I mean, it was impossible, to be honest. Uh-huh. How do you find an actress that can do all of those things? You know, yeah. her arc, I always think I have so much respect for actors in horror because yeah. they have to do the impossible. You know, it's not like they're talking about getting a divorce in a small room. You know, they are uh-huh. going here to here and that constant adrenaline and the constant trauma that Ella had to carry from day to day, you know, we shot in LA nights, 18 nights in a row. Wow. He was physically and mentally exhausted by this role. You know, it was so demanding on her body. Mm-hmm. It was, of course, it was the year that LA had like the most cold winter ever. <laughs> of course. Dress with no shoes and we're shooting in LA and those locations were not glamorous. You know, she's running down alleys where we're looking for needles, you know, on the ground and trying to get rid of the best we can, but she just went for it. And, and also she could play, what I really wanted to do is have that kind of turn where you're like, is this a romantic comedy? You know? Yeah. This is, is this aspirational? And she could play the hero in a romantic comedy and she can play the Uh hero in an action film and the hero in horror film. And so it took her, it took an actress like Ella to accomplish all that. It was pretty amazing to watch. Yeah. And I wonder, could you talk a little bit about the, that kind of cold open and that journey of like this dream date that seems like it's going to go every way that we all wanted, which is like, you're broke and you need, you suddenly, there's like this handsome guy in your life who lives in this really expensive house and couldn't this be wonderful? And then that great first use of the the run, you know, and kind of the choice you made to tell the story that way. Well, I think with these men that look so great on paper that hold these positions of power, the scariest thing to me is what happens behind closed doors, right? Mm-hmm. So that is why I literally have him say, no, the camera's not going to see this. And that's where they are their true selves. Uh And it's 
terrifying. Yeah, I love that moment where we can just hear. We can't see anything. The door is closed. And then we see Cherie and we know. You know, you don't need to. You don't yeah. need to see any of that. And and that was the one, you know, that was one insecurity I had initially about directing a horror film is I thought, oh, the violence. Like, how am I going to mm-hmm. shoot the violence? Actually, being a survivor, how do I want to treat this? Mm-hmm. And for me, I thought the most challenging aspect as a filmmaker is to create something that felt really terrifying, but without actually seeing a ton of the violence, you know, seeing the aftermath. And then we had an incredible sound designer and an incredible cinematographer. I always think of, you know, Rosemary's baby. If we had seen that baby, we would not be nearly as scared (laughs) by its little laser eyes or whatever, you know. in our head is always so much scarier than what we see on screen. Yeah, even even like the most classic horror movies like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, there's actually like barely any blood. Halloween yeah. has no blood, you know? So there's these kind of different versions. Something I loved about this is we don't often get to see, you know, a, a, I'll call it a horror revenge rather than like people would call them rape revenge movies or whatever. But like we don't usually get to see movies about women getting assaulted without having to watch the assault. Mm-hmm. first and be like, this is why it's okay that she's getting her revenge. But I really, I felt like that was very refreshing. So I'm really glad that that was a, a choice you made. And then we get, you know, it's not unclear how evil Ethan is at any point. <laughs> we get to see all the different ways that he is evil. So could you talk a little bit about Ethan and, and casting Pilar Asbeck as kind of, and how you have to find that balance between charm yeah, kind of creepiness, and then somebody that you can believe is this supernatural powered being. Yeah, well, I mean, Pilu is like a dramatic actor. He is mm-hmm. like is in Denmark. You know, he's he's the top tier, and I'm not scared of a lot of actors. Let me just say that you know? <laughs> <laughs> they're they're not terrifying presence to me. But Pilu, when I was watching Game of Thrones, I never mm-hmm. do. I think as a director, you do this a few times in your career where you like pause something and look someone up. And I'm like, who is this guy? Yeah. He is terrifying. And and then, you know, as I was about to, you know, interview him for the role and we were going to have a meeting, I started watching his other work and I'm like, what is this? He's like this dramatic actor playing a father crying and like he can literally, he's like Ella. He's one of those actors that can do it all. But He's really terrifying. I mean, truly, Mm -hmm. truly terrifying. And the nicest person and the most gentle, sweet puppy dog of a guy in real life. So I'm kind of fascinated by how he can channel that like inner psychopath. Because you think if someone does it that well, are they like secretly a really dark person? But I don't think (laughs) who is. I think he's just like this really dope actor. And, you know, the combination of him and Ella was like a really formidable pair. And yeah. And I think she was genuinely terrified of him. So a lot of it was just kind of reacting for her. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the stuff that you do really brilliantly is building in the power and access that he has before we find anything out about who he is or or what he represents. The moments of, you know, in jail, the places that he can open doors to. I mean, that's the scariest thing is this idea that you cannot get away from him, even if you're being incarcerated he can still be there because he knows how to open every door. 
Well, it's relentless. It's a relentless attack. And that's what I feel like. It feels like to go through this as a woman, it feels relentless. You do not get a break. There's yeah. never a time where you feel like I had a great week. You know, you're just <laughs> always on guard and most of the time scared. And I think even with, you know, part of the reason I, I did that episode in the jail was because there was a, there was a man who had tried to rape me in an alley. He was my next door neighbor. And he didn't. I was able to fight him off, but I called the police. And, uh, you know, a few hours later, they showed up. He was my neighbor and they took him to jail. And then an hour later, I saw him again at his house. And I said, wait, this guy was trying to rape me, but he didn't. But he was, he would have if I wasn't able to fight him off, but he didn't. So we can't charge him for that. And I thought, wow, the law is not on our side. I do not feel protected. And I had to get a restraining order. And eventually the police, which he broke, the police made it my problem. And they said, you should mm -hmm. move. If you're yeah. scared, you should move. And, and so here I was, I was, you know, 25 broke and I had to find a new place to live. And as I was leaving that neighborhood, I remember looking back and thinking, what about all the other women walking their dogs? Because that's what I was doing when he attacked me. I felt like I was leaving them behind. You know, it was such an odd feeling. So I, I made flyers and like put them on trees. And that, that was the moment where I felt like I, I am not protected by uh -huh. the law when it comes to this. I don't feel safe. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's arguably a, a one of the bigger issues in the generalized system of like, how do you stop a crime and do the people who are supposed to keep us safe actually stop crimes or do they come in after things have already happened? One of the other things that I found really wonderful about this movie is it feels like I, I've watched a lot of movies, like horror movies especially, so I, I'm not going to make a generalized statement. But to me, it felt very rare to see a single mother as a final girl in this movie or to recognize that a single mother can have a sex life, can want to date, and then can also be strong enough to, to fight off this supernatural threat. So could you talk about that choice? Because I thought that was really kind of, some people might not notice it, but to me, I thought that was really powerful. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it was a single mother that I didn't want there to be any shame of her going into his house after having a date, you know? Um, that was her choice. It was a choice I've made in the past. I think mm -hmm. everyone has made in the past. So I, I'm so glad that you did not judge her and I hope no one does. Um, but it was really important for me and Effie Brown, who is our producer and Ella for there to be a black final woman, you know, yeah. and I haven't seen a lot of that. And I'm, I'm really proud that my movie does have that and we collaborated with some really amazing writers on this kelly terrell and keith atkins to really bring the authenticity to that experience and that's one of the most proud elements i have of the film is that we have a black final girl she's a single mom and she's a complete badass and ultimately <laughs> isn't you know she in a lot of horror films we have the black woman asking the white woman are you okay like can i do so what are you, are you okay and then she's killed or something and the white woman goes on to survive. So um, thank you for, for noticing that. No, I mean, I thought it was brilliant. There is a, I've written a lot about final girls and there is a distinct lack of black final girls and final women of color. And it was wonderful to see it. Ella now joins a, a rare, a rare group, which I love. 
you know, it's like Brandy and Sana Lathan are like two of the only ones. <laughs> so it's a pretty rad group to be in. Yeah. But, um, no, I love that. And I love that you went out of your way to make sure that it was an authentic situation. Because I feel like in a movie where people are fighting off, you know, and we'll do a spoiler warning before this and this will run when the movie is out so people can watch it afterwards. But when people are fighting kind of vampiric threats, it would be easy to just be like, oh, it's just any other experience. It's just any woman. But it, I think that's why the movie comes off so well is because there was thought put into it on kind of every level from that choice to not show the sexual violence and not go the exploitation route to the choice to also, I mean, how cool is it to have a movie that they did a very good job not telling me anything about this movie. So when I first thought about it, I thought it would be kind of like an after hours kind of like journey through the night, like quite, you know, then the beginning really is like that where you really feel that horror of the evening. But I think it's very cool that it gets to end in this totally almost like outrageous supernatural adventure place that we don't get to see a lot of women in, let alone a lot of black women getting to be in those roles. So could you talk a little bit about that arc from this kind of really gritty personal story to exploding it out into this bigger supernatural space. Yeah, well, I think I, you know, this isn't a documentary about my experience. <laughs> you know, like, I wanted this to be a really thrilling, fun ride. I mean, the biggest yeah. compliment when people watch this movie is they say, oh my God, that was so much fun. Yeah. And, you know, that's what I wanted it to be. It is fun. We have great music and sexy lighting and LA locations. And yeah, it goes to a big, crazy place. I love the operatic nature of, you know, the third act. And it felt really right when I was telling it. It mm -hmm. it kind of, I kind of wrote it in a fever dream. And it was one of those that, that I wrote very quickly. And as I was writing, I just kept going and making it kind of more wild and taking my experience in timesing it by multiplying it in front of me to create something which I think is is really unique. And, and the collaboration, I feel like, you know, Effie Brown is an incredible producer and she said something that I will never forget, which is you can't make a movie about us without us. Uh -huh. And that really, really rang true for me. So she introduced me to these writers and we had the, uh, we had um, the opportunity with Amazon's full support to go back into the film. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Really tell it the way that we wanted to and in the most authentic way possible. And so um, that's something I'm also just really proud of and grateful for. Yeah. And you sort of, you touched on, you know, Rosemary's Baby and that idea of like things being scarier when you don't see them. What were some of the other horror movies that you kind of revisited and 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 looked at when you were, when you were making Run Sweetheart Run? I mean, I, I'm still like an eighties baby. So yeah. I was just watching the John Carpenter films and those are the ones like that felt so visceral to me. Mm -hmm. you know? And the color palette was so unique. And also our score who yeah. um, done by Rob feels like it's like nostalgic in the best way. Um, and we all kind of decided on this incredibly specific color palette mm -hmm. and of the film, you know, Ella is constantly in circles and P. Lou is in squares for a more masculine shape. We played a lot around with the colors red and um, green, and it's a very limited color palette, which, you know, you just don't get to do something as stylized when you're making some of the films that I've made in the past, the little yeah. teen love stories. It just got me to flex, allowing me to flex a different muscle as a director, which was so fun. 
Yeah, one of the things that I really loved about the movie that I thought, because I, I, this is exactly my kind of movie. I, I love, I love all the things you talked about the the eighties horror. I love movies with strong women, but who are actually well written and complex and and get to be have different sides to their life. But one of the things that I thought was so cool was the use of run throughout the movie. Like you talk about stylized. That is such a cool, interesting and kind of unexpected choice. It feels a lot more like it's from a a weird like Danish kind of uh, art house like horror. So could you talk a little bit about having that there as that kind of visceral reminder of, of what she needs to do? Yeah. And I, I think that was one of the most controversial aspects of the film while we were making it. Our, our team was very divided into whether we should show that or not. And actually when we went to Sundance, it wasn't in the cut. And that was always one of those things, like when Amazon purchased the film and we were doing these reshoots and I was like, do I actually get to get closer to the director's cut? Uh Can I get closer and add some of these things back that are really important to me? And one of the the most thing the, the thing that I was most excited about about those runs is that in the end it's turned around on him, right? Yeah. And and that just felt so satisfying to me. And also, you know, I use the camera a lot to hide what he's doing, but also I thought a character this powerful should control the camera as well. Mm-hmm. He should control what we see at all times. And literally, you know, he has his hands on that camera and is moving it to what he wants us to see. And at the end, the moment where Ella reclaims the camera yeah. after his final run, I mean, we we tried to figure out how to shoot that a hundred million different ways. And that was that was one of those moments when I watched it and I can't stand watching my own films. I'm like just a mess and I'm just <laughs> only mistakes. I only see mistakes. Yeah. But when I watch that final moment, I like get like the chills. I'm like, oh, I, I think I did that right. I did that right. Yeah, I loved it. I'm the same. We do this podcast every week and I cannot for the life of me listen to it. If Jason does something by himself, I will listen to that part. But when it's my voice, I'm like, I, I can't do it. <laughs> yeah, and you're so lovely. And you oh, just thanks. ask the best questions. You're so well, good at this. Thank you. I appreciate that. And you are a wonderful filmmaker, but I feel like it's just inside us. I remember at Thanksgiving, um, I did a film called Country Strong way back and it was on like, you know, Netflix again. And someone's like, oh, Country Strong's on. And I was like, <laughs> like everybody looked at me like, what's going on? I mean, I see my films once, like when I make my final edit and then I never can watch it again. Yeah, it's a it's a wild it's a wild situation that we're all in. Hopefully the next generation will be able to love. That will be the one good thing about like TikTok and Instagram is they will actually be able to enjoy the stuff yes, that they made. Yes, yes. I totally <laughs> and, agree. You know, you got the screening tonight. You've obviously you already screened a version of it at Sundance, but soon it's going to be out there for everyone to see on, you know, one of the biggest platforms. Is there anything that you're kind of most excited for people to see? I mean, I'm really excited for people to see. Once again, I feel like I'm an actor's director and I'm excited about the performances. You know, we have working with Showray, this cast, Dio and Clark Mm -hmm. and Betsy. We just have, everybody brought it, you know, they just brought it. And it was so fun directing them. So I'm really excited to show everybody the performances and to also get such a wide platform for this movie is, uh, I freaks me out. Like if I talk about it too much that like people all over the world will be watching this movie, but I'm, I'm just excited to have found a way to tell a personal 
but really fun, thrilling horror film. Yeah, that's wonderful. And when when we interview people, if we get the chance of them, we sort of say to them, like, um, what's the one piece of media, whether it can be a book or a comic or a movie, if you could just keep one piece forever that kind of led you on and you could just only keep one, what what would it be? Wow. Um, okay, that's a hard question to answer. <laughs> on, uh, but I think it would probably be the film Five Easy Pieces for me. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So I love love, love a good anti-hero. And I love the storytelling back then. Um, so yeah, that's what it would be for me. I love that. Thank you so much. And I just appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. It was really wonderful. And congrats on the movie. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Big thanks to Shauna Feste and Rosie Knight for joining us on X-Ray Vision. Rosie, what do you have to plug? Uh, it's coming up to the holiday season. I will plug, we talked a little bit about Andor. I will plug, uh, do some mutual aid. Find out what your mutual aid networks are. If you are in LA, there's so many brilliant places that you can do. Homey made meals. You can drive, you can drop off food. Check out, I share a lot of different spaces where even if you don't live in LA, you can donate money. Find out how you can help people who live around you. Food drives, Uh, baby stuff, all that kind of stuff, always needed. And there's loads of great people in your neighborhood already doing it. So I'm sure if you search Mutual Aid, you'll be able to find it. I share a lot of resources. Do that. It will make you feel really good for Thanksgiving. And hopefully you can make it something that is a part of your regular life as you go forward into the new year. And as always, you can find me here and Rosie Marks on social media. LA Community Fridges is another one that I support. I think it's great. You can, there's a list Again, if you're in the Los Angeles area, there's a list of various goods, mostly pantry goods, hygiene products that that communities need that you can drop off at these various locations, and they really, really help people. And it kind of cuts out the middle yeah, person. Like, that's you a great one. That you are you are helping people directly. Yeah, and community fridges is great because you can go there anytime, whenever it works anytime. for you. You don't have to schedule it. You can just go there, drop stuff off. You can help clean the fridge. That is a great call. And I'm sure that there are people around the country also doing other similar community fridge programs. Our next episode on November 11th is the big MCU Wakanda for Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. We're going to Wakanda. We're picking up the Vibranium episode. Very excited to see this movie. I can't wait because I just can't wait. Subscribe to the show on YouTube. Follow it at XRVPod on Twitter and check out our Discord to meet and hang out with other fans who are listening to the show like yourself who want to discuss some of the things that uh, we talk about here on the show uh, in a in a environment uh, that is safe and where you can meet other people who feel and think like yourselves. Wonderful conversations there. Rosie and I are there uh, interacting with everybody. Come see us. Five-star ratings. We love them. We need them. We got to have the five-star reviews. Here's one from Judson F. Jason and Rosie rule. Thank you so much. Rosie and Jason are great together and separate. It's refreshing to hear their enthusiasm and knowledge regarding all the media we love so great. Thank you, Judson Thank you, Judson. X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by myself and Sandy Gerard. Our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Dylan Villanueva and Matt DeGroote provide video production support. Alex Relaford handles social media. Thank you, Brian Vasquez, for our theme music. Thank you all. Talk to you later. Goodbye. 
Mike. Uh, I'm here to talk about my guy Saw Guerrero today. You know, I think a lot of people thought maybe Saw Saw had gone too far, particularly in the during the Clone Wars period. People were like Saw, you you a little too extreme, folks. You're doing a little too too many crazy things, and certainly leading up to the Battle of Yavin when. Saul was using Borgullet to, uh, you know, to, to kind of read people's minds, maybe in uh, not exactly uh, a, 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 a way that it was kind of kind to people. Certainly that maybe some people might have said that was torture. Well, I got to tell you what, Mike, with the latest things that have been revealed about the Empire, we all understand that maybe uh, Borgullet was uh, the kind of response that you had to make considering the uh, the genocidal tapes that the Imperial uh, forces are playing for the people that they're trying to torture to get information from, Mike. This is some of the worst things I've ever heard in my life, Mike. And I, and I got to tell you, I watched the Yankees lose this season. That, and I listened to Michael K, uh, you know, call every single game. I thought I'd never hear anything worse than that, Mike. And then I, I heard about the Denzonite the, the massacre by the Imperial forces and the way they recorded those tapes and they play them for people to break their minds, Mike. I think it's terrible. I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you.